Stop touching your ear. That was mysterious. <laughs> and misguided. Kind of, because we can't see each other. Yep, because but. this is an audio product. And we we don't share a studio space. But that's kind of the whole point. So It, you know, it, I... it has it, it has saved both of our lives from, from mutual dismemberment a couple of times already. Mutual mutiny. Henrik! Uh, we have never been face to face in this podcast. That's kind of funny to think about. Now we have met wa- we... twice, once in real life <laughs> during this time. Twice in, in or, or do you mean after we started the podcast? Right. Yeah, yeah. In that case, once we did try to be face to face and do an episode. Nothing came of that. Yeah, nothing came of that. We were short on schedule and uh, we didn't really plan it out. Maybe someday. I really hope we do it someday. <laughs> But you know, <laughs> you know how it is with the Finnish trains. You know you have to be pretty much a millionaire to get anywhere. Yep. All right, and uh, apart from my co-host Henrik, I am Kari, and our guest is Tom Franklin. Franklin Tom, who is the pond expert. Welcome once again, Tom. Good to see you again. It's been quite a while. Yeah, you you look kind of uh you look like you have suffered a bit of a precipitation out there. Oh, uh, for sure. Yeah. Uh, ah. I'm actually underwater right now. Wow, can't confirm. So how's life? How's it been? Ooh, ooh, ah. Well, uh, we've been just doing our thing, basically, and we had our one-month break with Henrik from recording podcasts, so uh, that was really, really much <laughs> required. And uh, I could have done even more, but here we are once again, at least. It has been quite a while. What is it I do here again? You're the Bond expert, giving oh, right. your expertise. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Ah, that's the one. Which means that today's episode is once again a Bond episode. Which means that the podcast will take take a break from its usual schedule, its usual program. And instead of typical Flick Lab episode, today's episode is once again this confrontational, this kind of battling me- mechanic. In, in the in the podcast in the early days, one of our first listener feedbacks was that please don't guys don't stop fighting in, in, in the podcast, and and because of that deliberate fighting got the back seat, it got pushed pushed way beho- behind, and we became more and more more the two gentlemen that we tried to present ourselves as being. But but then the other board episodes and. I, I, I think that the, the song itself could have used a little bit more umph, a little bit more... It, it could have used a little bit more energy, especially when contrasting the Pierre Brosnan film theme songs, which were, were very much... They were more kind of energetic pop music, especially in the last one, 
list. Yeah, which was gigantic dumpster fire to analyze that, 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 that. <laughs> but but altogether, I, I don't think it's it's best of, of the Bond themes. And I also think that when it comes to kind of a, the lyrics dealing with with the themes of the movie or, or dealing with, with the character of Bond, it, it once again, it's, it's not a home run, but it's an okay enough attempt. Tommy, your thoughts? The theme was very, very um, bland. Quite like the film itself, actually. Bland? Yeah, I think so. Oh, no. This is going to be a fighting field after all. <laughs> but when it comes to Bond themes, at least especially in the last 20 years, there is always some room for disappointment. I mean, you know my name is not the ultimate, the perfect Bond tune, maybe. And definitely not the uh, next one following this either. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, Alicia Keys and that that theme. I I, I have a, like I I have thoughts about that theme. <laughs> Jesus Christ! What the hell were they thinking? It's it's not the worst. It's not the worst Daniel Craig Bond film theme song that we have. That credit goes to once again to Spectre, because because by by, by love of God, that's a movie that can't get anything right. But, yeah, but I think... also, also the quantum theme was was pretty bad. Alicia Keys wasn't exactly on keys. No, no, and and the fucking dynamic between White and Keys really didn't work like at all. Alicia Keys has always tried to be more of a R&B singer, kind of a R&B pop mixture and white stripes has always been white stripes so like what what was everybody thinking when when they made that pairing the lyrics do do have some point in them like they they the lyrics themselves even though they are not not a masterpiece they do work with the themes of the film to a point but that's basically the only nice nice thing i have to say about about the opening song of quantum Henrik, it's it's very meta. It's it's very like it has a lot of different layers, especially that layer where she sings "Another Way to Die," which is kind of the mo of the of the theme tune, right? It's kind of another way to kill you, if you will. Kinda, yeah. I I was more, I I I was kind kind of more taken away with. With the with, with the lines of another pill from the killer turned a thrill into a tragedy, or or that that line about the dirty money, like th- those lines and those parts of the lyrics are are some of the best that that song has to offer. I'm thinking on the lines that as well as Madonna's "Die Another Day" that was very fitting for a torture opening, don't you think? In a in a way, yeah. In a way, like I said in the episode. I guess I haven't listened to it myself, so I don't know how it got cut in the end. But the point I was trying to make in in my fucking seven-year-long rambling about, about the theme song was that, it, <laughs> that, that there's there's a chance that it works as, as a really... meta narrative device for the torture sequence, or, or then there is a chance that Madonna is just <laughs> singing about herself. Uh, I had a, I had a few thoughts about that, Henrik, when I was editing it, like. 
Well, should I? Should I cut this rambling because it goes on for like seven or eight minutes about the <laughs> meaning of the song? And then I was like, oh, what the hell? I'm too lazy to do anything about it. Let's let him ramble. <laughs> minutes. Hours. <laughs> years, yeah, which... man. Fucking years. <laughs> Decades. It's, it, it, it's, it's like Brad Pitt made the film Seven Years in Tibet. Like, and if there would be like a film film made up of my life, that would be seven years of ramble. And then there is the let the sky fall, cookie crumble. How I was this that, one? That, that's the best one. Of yeah, the best movie. one. Yeah, of course. That's that's a good solid ass fucking theme song from the James Bond film. It is a very good song. More more interesting than than this one. Um, yeah. 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 You, when it comes to you know my name, it was done. This this song was done on some level, maybe even years before Casino Royale was even conceived of. So <clears throat> I understand David Arnold and Chris Cornell came up with uh, some of the lyrics at the later parts uh, around when they were about to push out Casino Royale. But anyway, the 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 most of the structure was done way before. Casino Royale. So that might have something to do with the lyrics, how you might feel them not really fitting the theme and all. Then again, so- something that does work with the theme quite well is the, is the opening visuals, or the visuals playing with the song. Yeah, and I, th- I think it's a very, as said on the commentary track as well, I noticed that the, this these lyrics are quite they are very sure of themselves and and kind of very cocky because you're introducing a new James Bond and then you go like oh well come on you, well you know already this guy's name so name so so it's you know it's 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 your new James Bond and you can't have any problem with that because you know it's James Bond you know already what this is all about you know well it it is seeing how Casino Royale is is a reboot of the franchise much needed one after after what what happened with Brosnan, you you know my name works as a as a statement for for this reboot, and it kind of works as as something that lays the groundwork for for the for the franchise continuing onwards from Casino Royale. Like it it states that even though we are rebooting the whole whole Bond and we are changing changing the Bond quite drastically as we go on. The audience still knows Bond's name and knows who the guy is. What happened with Pierce Brosnan was some icicle surfing in Iceland. <laughs> there was some fantastic deep being in that scene. I would like to correct something, <laughs> something regarding that episode. Because the audio was cutting a hell of a lot during this episode. Like one of the worst issues that we ever had. Oh, this Henrik was on and off. And I didn't catch that you were talking about like this ice uh, surfing scene uh, and the DP, especially in that scene. And, and then it got a little bit confused and we started... The fight, actually, I think it started it from that point, that confusion about what we were actually talking about in regards <laughs> to DP. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, no doubt, you know, you, you could have had way better close-ups during that scene to make it a little bit better. So. Overall, overall, I I didn't perhaps word this out the best in another day episode, but my my kind of a biggest problem with the DP in, in that film was that I didn't find that 
extraordinary level of quality that you seem to find uh, find from it. To, to me, the DP was kind of okay throughout the film. Like, sure, there was there was there was a flow from scene to scene. There was flow in in the action sequences and stuff like that. But that's also something that I kind of take for granted from major budgeted action movie and something that I've seen so many times already. Like, like mm. just see see the action flow fluidly from from one shot to another while, while you are having an action scene that's kind of a, i i take that for granted if you fail on that well i i would <laughs> I, would, I would say that would be more noticeable than you actually succeeding yeah actually well this is kind of a commonly known thing about editing and all but but in case to be a good editor you know it takes that that you don't really as an audience notice the editing and and it, it's it's quite a great part of uh, uh, visual arts that I respect a hell of a lot. I'm not saying that there was like something really groundbreaking in Die Another Day. More what I found in Die Another Day was like individual shots. Hey, that looks cool. There's a lot of lot of space, and uh, you know you leave a lot of space for movement in this frame, and then it continues quite fluidly to the next. And of course, they had beautiful backdrops and all like Eden jungles and all that. Yeah, and, and and to me, those individual shots were kind of for the biggest problem when it came to DP. Like to to me, when I noticed the individual shots, it was it was for example, it it was the green screen moments. It was the, the ice surfing. It's 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 the bad guy trio pose that they strike on the fucking air carrier at the end of the film, and I'm like. Yeah. The fuck are you doing? Like whatever this yeah. is. Stop! Time out, guys! Time out! Yeah, those close-ups on Brosnan and during the ice surfing, they are laughing oh like bad. <laughs> 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 All right, we got more or less to a common page, and you know, when it comes to deep being, I think they are, these are often a little bit sub- subjective as well. Like if you're expecting the DP to go in a particular way, for example, to get like a more close-ups when you get more closer to the action or the or the resolution of the of the film, you might be looking for that. And whereas I might not be paying that much attention to that and just maybe individual frames. But hey, uh, it's a curious mess that film. But all right, let's talk something some about something good like Casino Royale. Yeah, let's. Yeah. So, like Barbara Broccoli has said, uh, well, she was quoting Albert R. Broccoli, the original producer, and he said the following, whenever you're stuck, just go back to Fleming. And that's what they attempted here. Of course, oh, of course. If you have ever read the novel Casino Royale, we are way expanding the, like, the explosion and the whole sphere of the film. We'll get to all of this. Kind of, kind of, but then again, in, we are also sticking surprisingly close to Fleming in, 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 in more ways than one. Yeah, when you look at the previous entry, most definitely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have a certain director here, his name is Martin Campbell, he's doing a return after Goldeneye. So, Guy has already launched two new James Bonds, two very different James Bonds. Welcome back. Welcome back. Very happy to have Martin Campbell back here. 
he seems to be good with this stuff. Uh, maybe we get him back to direct the next one after an own time to die if Daniel Craig is willing to leave his uh, Baratas and PPKs in the holster and uh, there's gonna introduce some other guy once again. I guess it comes down to exactly how many millions MGM is willing to pay Craig to reappear on the franchise after... What, what, what is the name of the next film? Like, No Time to Die. Uh, too Busy to Die. Too Busy to Die. <laughs> too Busy to Die. <laughs> too, too lazy to push the daisies. <laughs> I think he's too preoccupied to perish or something. <laughs> 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 Excellent. Uh, so the origins of Casino Casino Royale, right, the beach dirt thing, are in the, of course, the novel, which was released in 1953. And then we had a live TV mini-movie in 1954, and the script was done by Charles Bennett. He is famous for some Alfred Hitchcock early films, Barry Nelson played so-called Jimmy Bond, but everybody was kind of aligned on the fact that James Bond doesn't translate too well on television. And uh, secondly, it was kind of a lazy production. And thirdly, you can't really make an American guy play James Bond that well. They found. They found? Like, shouldn't it be obvious? Kind of. So there's so much history. Gregory Radoff got filming rights to Casino Royale back in 1954, and then Gregory found Bond too absurd himself, even though he bought the rights. And They did a Casino Royale script, but Bond is not the main character even. Bond is called, called Lucky, based on Lucky Luciano character. In 1956, Gregory needs money and sells 50% of Casino Royale rights to Charles K. Feldman, who is one of the most powerful men in Hollywood. And then Radoff made Craddy Gary Cooper. He was offered the role of Bond. Feldman doesn't like the idea because uh, Cooper is too old. Then Ben Hecht. Hecht looks at script, reads the novel, says where it should be set. Well, it would be World War II and Portugal. And still in the script, there is no proper character of James Bond in it. 1960, Radoff dies. Feldman wants all the rights to himself. Pays Radoff wife $75,000 for rest of the rights, gets the rights, but then Dr. No comes out, and they don't really want to compete during this time. Of course, the so-called official E.ON franchise that we are going to look at this film today, they saw Thunderball remake and Casino Royale as possible competition for their franchise. And in 1967, there was this comedy version of James Bond released. Casino Royale from 1967, which was a film that featured also Ursula Andress, the first uh, James Bond girl in Dr. No. The film lost money. It's kind of unbelievable how you can have a license to do a James Bond film and then you mess it up. But they did manage to do that. So Rise to Casino Royale went to MGM in 2000. And this is also, like, there's a long, long winded history why also Columbia is one of the producers of the film of Casino Royale 2006. Yeah, a- anyone who has seen the 1967 version of Casino Royale <coughs> could, could kind of a, has a clear picture in their head why that film lost money. I was looking at these documentaries related to the, the Casino Royale and from Eon's side. 
And part of the story that they came up with is that <clears throat> since, unfortunately, they were working on this Jinx film, Jinx spin-off from Die Another Day, the writers, Robert Wade and uh, who's the other guy? Jesus. Uh, let's say Jack Wade, CIA. But they were writing the the script for Jinx and the story was supposed to be more human scale, like more down the earth. And they were suggesting that this is the basis that also Casino Royale of their version got a little more grounded interpretation. I think it's more like, well, we had a shitty idea to do a Jinx spin-off, so we're going to salvage what we can and save face and uh, uh, try to argue that this marvelous project that is the Jinx spin-off got the Casino Royale to be as good as it is. (laughs) So, about the book... Casino Royale was written during Ian Fleming's divorce process. There's a lot of theme of treachery in the film. Uh-huh. And um, Ian Fleming, of course, was working for the Navy during the Second World War as a naval intelligence officer, uh, like a personal assistant to the dire- director of naval intelligence, which is where he got the bunch of his ideas. Was his wife a treacherous woman? <laughs> <laughs> The story doesn't tell that. Foreign manager of Sunday Times was also one of his roles. And you could say that the books that he wrote are kind of all the biographies, in a sense. Because it's it's very much coming from his personal experiences. Of course, the Secret Service never approached him and wanted to keep him as some kind of a secret agent. So it's more of a, a fantasy what he's writing about. But then again, it comes with a lot of details and he's books are very engaging on points. Henrik, have you read any of the Ian Fleming novels? I've, I've, I've read the ones that kind of are mandatory reading behind the scenes of the podcast. Ooh. I also did read like like the Goldfinger halfway through, but never finished. Yeah. I think I'm done with my my things here, so would it be scene by scene? By all means, yeah. But Henrik, how how do you reckon that, how do you think, how did we end up with Daniel Craig in this film, first of all? I really don't know. A a lot of pointers when when it comes to discussion on on Daniel Craig's casting, you usually point down to a previous gangster film that, that, that Craig had started in called Layer Cake. In, in which Daniel Craig plays uh. a London-based tra- drug dealer who finds himself in a in a kind of a ticking clock situation, and he has to kind of up his now mysteriously appeared competition and also save his his financial wealth while be, being targeted in in multiple directions. And that film often is credited as the as the film that most likely got Daniel Craig in, into the list of possible Bond candidates. Yeah, the producers saw Layer Cake, and I believe this was giving them the idea of casting him finally. Although the casting process seemed to be long, it lasted for about two years. And they did look into Daniel Craig, and for Barbara Broccoli, apparently Daniel Craig was always the man to take on board, but they went through uh, who knows how many auditions, and then they... Finally, we were like, okay, okay, Barbara, you win. Let's go with Daniel Craig. And something like that. And 
of course, there's also the unfortunate reality that you could also point fingers maybe to MGM's directions. Who knows how it ultimately went down. But what we know is that Pierce Brosnan was not invited for the fifth outing. And kind of the producers and probably the production house also realized that there is not many ways to go forward forward after Die Another Day. So you have to come up with something different. And that's exactly what they did. Yeah, Daniel Craig's casting originally got a lot of backlash. Yeah. For many, many saw that Craig is unfit for to, to play Bond, to play a dog hair. Was he yeah. ancient in the in the books? And now, now, well, Daniel Craig is blonde and has blue eyes. And for for many, that was kind of a breaking the tradition of of Bond. And, and something that immediately got kind of a lionized Daniel Craig as as a as a possible Bond candidate. Yeah, I remember there was was it called CraigNotBond.com. Actually, when I'm checking out now, it actually still the domain exists, but it seems that uh, uh, is this still something that is uh, anti-Craig? I have to delve deeper into this, but apparently CraigNotBond.com still exists. So uh, originally, anyway, this was uh, kind of a website that was really uh, against the blonde bond, and the guy doesn't look anything like the previous bond, so that was the argument. Yeah, um, and to a point, I, I, I can see that there, there's a kind of a fuckies element to, to Craig's portrayal of the character. Yeah, when we have been talking about in this podcast as well that Timothy Dalton could have been like the proto-Daniel Craig James Bond, there are still a very, very huge differences in how they portray Bond. And I guess in this episode or the next one, Inspector, or even the next one after that, No Time to Die, we can talk about like who, after all, was your favorite James Bond, if you can say anything like that. Mm. Yeah, but that out of the way, I I kind of can very well see see the situation where the production house found themselves after another day. Sigmund Freud. Yeah, like, like the franchise really needed a reboot at that point. There there was no way that the franchise could have salvaged the legacy of of the last of the Brosnans. I need to lay down. And kind of kind of taking this this much more. Casting, casting Greg is kind of taking an extreme awesome. length when it comes to distancing yourself from 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 Brosnan and and from the Brosnan era of of James Bond. Cucumber sandwich. Afternoon tea. <laughs> I, I, I get the feeling that I'm talking to a to a brick wall assholes here. Standard. Uh, okay, better to carry on. Uh, so, to start with with the scene by scene, we do not start with the gun barrel, Henrik. What's up with that? Because we're introducing a new James Bond and we're going to make everything different, at least on this yeah, part. Yeah, basically all the rules are out of the window this time. That no gun barrels at the, at the first shot of the film, no martinis, no theme song, no... My name is Bond, James Bonds. Uh, there is one vodka martini, I think. There but, is, there is. But, but he, he doesn't give a damn whether it's shaken yeah, or stirred. 
we we kind of see the birth of of the vodka martini in in form of the drink vesper that Bond comes up in the course of the film. And likewise with the martini, we do finally in the in in the course of the film we do get all all the classical trappings of of Bond film, like the theme song and the gun barrel and all that nonsense. But but in Casino Royale, it, it, you kind of earn those moments as the film goes on. They are not just given to you outright during the timestamps that you would typically actually think that the bond would give that the film would give them to you. Dry martini. Wait. Three measures of Gordon, one of vodka, half a measure of Kinalile, shake it over ice, and add a thin peel of lemon. Vespa. I have I had it today. Yeah. Henrik Tom. Never yeah. tried it myself because martinis in Finland cost you like a liver. The, the only way to be a student and get a, get a decent martini in Finland is to make it yourself. And also basically the ingredients in Finland cost like a ton. But yeah, basically the, 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 the bartender was just like, hold on, hold on, slower, slower. <laughs> <laughs> and then I explained it for the third time and he was like shaking his head okay I will go get some piece of paper and okay what was it okay three measures of Gordon okay and uh, would it be like 40 milliliters or would it be 20 milliliters fuck do I know it's three measures of Gordon god damn it and uh, then I carried on to the vodka he gave me the Polish vodka and then he mixed into it something that was sweet It wasn't Kina Lilay, or as we know it today, Lilay, because he didn't have it, and he didn't have any fucking idea what is a Lilay. But it's basically some kind of a, uh, like a flavored wine that you can put into it, and then you shake it over ice, and then you put a little slice of lemon into it. And uh, it was only like 25 slotties, and I quite in, quite enjoyed it. It was su- kind of sweet and sour, with kind of a, this... Uh, this uh, a bitter, bitter aftertaste. Bitter aftertaste, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I loved it. Gotta try it more. I was kind of really, really impressed by the memory of the of the waiter and the casino. <laughs> Me too. Anyway, in the opening scene, we start with the external shot of a building, and we have a black and white scene. We start with this eerie elevator where this guy is going after parking his car. Even the elevator has a really eerie sound. And This was a we... very good scene. It was a really good scene. He gets upstairs. The inspiration for the scene was something of like the third man and the spy who came in from the cold, visually speaking, or maybe even the Ipcress file, which was something that Martin Campbell and one technician that worked on this film had watched and quite liked it. And it was shot on black and white film. So it was not shot on color and then digitally removing the color later on it was actually black and white film to give it apparently some some special special quality and they mentioned that when you work in black and white there it's a lot more work to light everything correctly and there is more emphasis on the contrasts as you see here it's either very black or it's either very bright so this huge contrast in the face and in the background for example Yeah, the trick with with black and white film uh, is that the film itself highlights the white areas of of the shot. 
and kind of also in emphasis that the black areas and this, for example the shadows that you get on the on any given shot and this kind of a like, like mentioned it does make the the lighting of 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 those shots kind of a nightmare when you compare them them to how how you shoot today and how you light your scenes today in in the color film era because you kind of you have to put the light so that you can really get the emphasis and the light work with the with the white materials in in the shot that there's actually a long running history in 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 hollywood film noir films and and the black actors in those films because the kind of the the counter reaction to this or or, or the un, unfortunate side result of of black and white film is that that white actors like like Daniel Craig like Humphrey Bogart they the film works ex- phenomenally well with them and really kind of gives gives this this glow of its own to white actors but or, or the black actors kind of get swallowed by by the shadows in in the shots if you want to start study the theme kind of more deeply i i do recommend that you check out for example Casablanca which is a great create a example of, of this problem when it comes to black and white film and not only this there was some technique used here aching to old films of course listeners might know that color uh, the technique of techniscope developed by technicolor and it was some kind of a widescreen process which used half the film negative you have a 2.40 to 1 expanded and squeezed down to make standard 35mm cinemascope print. And then you have more depth of field than standard cinemascope. And you get kind of a uh, dirty compositions without it being too squatchy, apparently. So it, 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 it gives some kind of a more definition to it, more graininess. You kind of can see this already in the opening when you, when you compare the... Per the footage, you can. How did he die, Henrik? Well, not well. He he died comparably. You needn't worry. The second is, yes, considerably. And we get to the gun barrel that is made kind of short and sweet, but fits the moment. And in this were in this film, it really works that they are using the gun barrel at at this moment. And it's kind of a nice to finally see the guy to whom the gun barrel belongs to and and to see uh, see see it actually have some goddamn point because in in the, in basically the openings of the previous bond films the scenario has been that bond is just you know walking down the street going to get his pint of milk or some shit like that and then there's just just is some dude who is t- taking aim at bond for, for yes. no apparent reason it's and, like a dude is just strolling on the street and then yeah, and and and, and, and gun barrel just appears because that's what happens in London, that the cr- crime capital of of EU or, or not EU in uh, anymore. Right, Tom Franklin, Mr. Franklin, how was your last day in the EU? How do you feel? Um, uh, my last day in the EU, which was last week, I think. Mm. I guess it was okay. Okay, no celebratory drinks. No visiting the morgue or... I had a or, Vesper. Or, you had a Vesper. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> Awkward. 
we 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 have been struggling not to bring up Brexit in 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 the recordings of the of the episode. Yeah, sorry. I was just wondering, what does that have to have to do with with this film? Well, what does Boris Johnson and the clouds above him have to do with this podcast? Not. Uh, uh, I have no answer to that question. I, I have no idea what you are talking. About. No, 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 no. Moonraker episode. Anyway, <clears throat> so yeah, we we have the gun barrel, and we're getting to these title sequences that are done by Daniel Kleinman is providing the opening title sequence. Henrik, your thoughts? They do tying pretty nicely with the film. I I kind of like them. They are not the best. Once again, the I, I would say the best ones maybe go to to Skyfall. Wow. Uh, they are okay. I I do like the fact that the the casino motif is being played out throughout the title sequence. This is this is something that I come to enjoy with me with my bond titles ever since the golden eye where i think they really first nailed nailed it and nailed nailed you using using the title sequences as something that sets up the tone for the rest of i really enjoyed this and i think it's it just might be the best title sequence that is out there at least of the modern era for sure because it fits the fits the theme as you said and i think it has this 2d the two-dimensional quality to it as it as they had in the old days, and I really enjoyed that. And I have, I think we have completely lost it in the latest films like Spectre and Skyfall. So yeah, and especially that it's very animated. It has like strong uh, borders, very very strong colors, and exposes some actual film material when there's like a scope going to the to the target, and then it reveals evergreen or yeah, it's beautiful. It, it is. It is. I, I myself, I'm more well, once again in in favor of of Dracula's fallen from sky, uh, turning into gravestones, kind of kind of, kind of things. But I, I do admit that the title sequence is pretty pretty good. It's pretty strong opening for the film. And yeah. I, I I can I can guess that when when you're kind of a encompassing motive or or the direction that you can be given regards the title sequences that is basically comes down to well we are setting setting the film to happen in casino you you kind of are against the wall like what the hell you are going to do with directions like that like how you are going to make casino interesting and for credit where credit is due the film and the title sequence actually does find a way <laughs> I read the novel Casino Royale before I went to see this film in theaters. I have to say I, I was a little bit disappointed. I was yeah. a little bit disappointed. Yeah. Because it, it really didn't get to, obviously it didn't get to, but it really didn't get to the nitty-gritty James Bond films of the yesteryears. For example, something like From Russia With Love. That's how the book is. That's how the film is. That's what I wanted to have in Casino Royale. The, the fuck do you mean that's how the book and the film is like what what what, I mean, what 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 is the golden golden kind of direction I mean, of your I mean, here when i'm talking about film i'm talking about from russia with love yeah yeah it yeah, has yeah 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 yeah, yeah I, right. i'm trying to make the make the case that casino royale is not gritty i'm saying that it's gritty but it's uh well the right word choice would probably be more down to earth because it's not 
really enough down to earth to be exactly where where I want it to be. But it's trying, it's trying really hard, uh, considering that it's having this, the audience that it has, and it has to be in certain limitations and and stuff. But for example, in the book, you don't have these scenes where the car is doing well. It's doing some rolling, but it's not doing this unbelievable jumps and rolls in the air and it's it doesn't have any of this scene of uh, on this airfield where bond is fighting and explosions go off that is just some modern bullshit you know you have to launch launch a action scene here so here's something for you yeah yeah then again then again i i do think that at times the novel also kind of fumbles when it comes to presentation, for example, the the whole assassination attempt on Bond, which in in film plays out as a as a poison drink, and Bond need, needs to use his gizmos to contact his super, superiors, yeah, and and stuff like that. And in the book, it's basically Bond is sitting on a chair, and dude sneaks behind him, and Bond. Bond masters the situation by backflipping on on the chair and but, <laughs> yeah. but but you know you know the excitement to to give give credit to the excitement for that scene in the book the dude's gun had a silencer so that that's nice that's cool silencers yeah, on be- guns are cool yeah, it's it's gonna be that silent that you can't hear or notice anything when I shoot you with this. <laughs> And then I was wondering for the rest of the book, like, how did it did it work? Maybe it was mentioned, but I didn't see it. Like, how did it work that now the baddies are not able to get the Bond? Because Vesper is in between James Bond and the baddies. Whatever. But that is definitely good that they changed that. I forgot to mention the deleted scene of Cricket Pavilion. So we had some more extended material on the first kill of James Bond. So he finds him in a cricket game. And... Uh, this is kind of a flashback, and this is where Bond finds, finds the first target, and then he gets uh, this guy into the toilet and kills him there. Okay, we get to Ugandan camp. This is actually filmed in the UK. Really? Yeah. They, they couldn't find enough blacks in Czech Republic. Surprise, surprise. So they shot it in England, and this was shot in Black Park. Have you been in Black Park? No. Frankland? No? Where's that? Buckinghamshire. No. <laughs> Right. Looks like a fun place, must tell you. Ah, quite convincing. The pipelines scene of the, the World is Not Enough was shot in the same park. Also the gypsy camp in From Russia with Love and the Russian helicopter in Die Another Day. I understand it, the beginning of the film. It's almost like the production house has an access only to one park in entire England. Yes, there's only one park in England which can transform into Uganda, Henrik. <laughs> and uh, then there is talk about the Skyfleet stock. So what happens here? Now Le Chiffre is now offering his services to a Ugandan kind of a team that is fighting against the government, supposedly. Uh, then he decides that he will sell his Skyfleet stocks so that they can later try to explode the Skyfleet airplane. Something like that. Yeah, essentially what, what Le Chiffre is doing, he's betting against the market. Like, he's making a high-chips gambling move here. He's, he's Essentially, what he's doing, he's, he's placing a bet that the stock, stocks will, will drop 
But how is it related to working with these Ugandan camp dudes? I just can't put it together. He he's he's taking he's taking the warlords, the U, Ugandan warlords money, and he's placing that money as a bet against the stock market. Like he's But he lost it. He 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 loses it when when the when the stock doesn't drop. When Bond manages to to foil the attempt to explode the airplane. Uh, so he has bought some Skyfleet stock for. He hasn't. The third... ha- hasn't bought them. Like he he doesn't. I I guess he doesn't own own Skyfleet stocks himself. He's just you know putting putting the money as a bet. Uh, and and making a statement that the stock market or or, or the Skyfleet stocks will drop. Mm. It it ha- does happen occasionally in in stock markets. Like that that is a move you can do when it comes to stock. You you can make make that kind of a bet, but you don't run into that quite so often because that's not what you typically do when you are gambling the stock market. <laughs> Okay, anyway, we get to Madagascar, Mad at NASCAR. This was not filmed in Madagascar because they realized that it was incredibly hard to film in Madagascar. Madagascar get all the rights and etc. So... Black Park. <laughs> Black Park, no. But Madagascar was filmed in the Bahamas. They decided to move a lot of the production into the Bahamas because they found a lot of suitable places there. For example, the construction site here. And, uh, Can I just say this? This parkour guy was very, very impressive. Yep, yeah, he was very, very good. He had six skills. And this is the this is the time when parkour started to gain ground or actually be known in any way as a phenomena. So it was something that I think James Bond film Casino Royale very much introduced to the world. Yep, he is very good. And the parkour really does work with the character of Bond here, because it shows kind of a differences between Bond and the world he's facing. The scene there, the opening action scene in Madagascar, kind of a, manages to use the action as a way to tell you something about Bond as a character. Most definitely, especially when he's going through the wall. So he's 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 he's, he's kind of reckless. He he's that, and he's kind of a. He he's not that suave in, in his movements. Well, like like Am says it later on in the film, he's in, in casino. He's more of a blunt object. This might be hard for a blunt instrument to understand. Yeah, blunt yeah. In, instrument. That's the term. There's a lot of differences that we already see. If, if you want to compare something to Timothy Dalton here, you know this this guy is way more reckless than Timothy Dalton ever was. He's not this type of a typical gentleman person and he's very cocky and proud I would say. Exceedingly proud like like pride is something that really is, is one of Bond's handicaps in yeah. in especially in, in Casino Royale. Like Bond kind of repeatedly fucks up the situation because his ego can't take the takes the hit of him somehow losing the situation or losing to a, an, another person. Which is kind of the story of, of the film. It's it's all about balls. It's balls. 007 and balls. I like balls. James Balls. The bad guy, the parkour guy, was supposed to be first called Two Fingers, or at least he was supposed to have two fingers. 
but they gave that up because the guy has to kind of run and jump, so you need kind of additional fingers or yeah. amount of fingers. So they just decided against it and they gave him scars to make him kind of a James Bond character in a way. No gadgets here, it's just uh, James Bond and him using his body. He wouldn't be a James Bond villain without some kind of physical deformity. Right? Yep, he, he wouldn't. And he kind of also wouldn't be a long-running bomb maker with, without axe. at least one accident behind him. And at least as far as the commentary track points out, and I should, I should know it also myself because I've been watching this movie since I was five years old, but uh, like off the top of my head, this is kind of hard to recall, but they made the case that this is the only foot chase in the entire James Bond franchise, and it's probably true. Most likely, yeah. I... Uh, at least on top of my head on the moment, I can't name another own foot bond. Not very long one, at least, yeah. No. So this construction site, it was the Ministry of Defense site right next to where Thunderball scenes were shot. And there was this expanded part of the Thunderball Hotel, which was never completed, and it laid abandoned for over 40 years, and this is where they shot it. So Bahamas is not a stranger for Bond. Bond has gone to Bahamas in Thunderball, you only live twice, the spy who loved me for years, only to all this on Elf and now a Casino Royale. And finally, everything is real. We don't have any any surfing scenes amongst the icicles here. No CGI. This is pretty much everything is real. Maybe some backgrounds have been changed here and there, but it's not key to this change, uh, this action. There is, of course, the cable that is slowing down the end of the jump so that they don't mess up their legs when they are touching the ground in those huge jump scenes. Mm. Great energy in this scene. This is this is a very exciting scene. It, it never lets you go. It's exciting from beginning to end. Uh, no, I disagree. Mm. Yeah, fuck you do, man. So, the problem with this film is that the action scene was very well filmed and well acted. Just go on for far too long, in my opinion. I started to clock watch. Oh, wow. You, you must be the only person in the, in the entire world clock watches on, during the action scenes of this film. Nope. Well, there's only this scene when they go to see the huge aircraft, which is going for too long, in my opinion. And I didn't really care for the entire sequence that much. But I accept it, that it's there. It's something that happened. You, you both can just leave the podcast at this point. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. <laughs> get, get the fuck out of my podcast. <laughs> but then we get to continue this scene in Embassy, and it gets even more wild. Okay, so the bullets are flying. Daniel insisted to being amongst the 300 to 400 flying bullets, so he's trying to give his all. I get the impression from all the interviews, of course they are marketing related, but I get the impression that Daniel Craig really wanted to do as much of the action as possible, and that's kind of, it's hard to argue against because he is... He is in many of those close-up, in also in some high-altitude scenes. So great to watch the guy taking a lot of risks. Also broke his leg during No Time to Die, so he's still doing that. Yeah, Casino Royale is almost like like a time from a time period when Daniel Craig still wanted to make a Bond film. Yeah, the first ones are <laughs> always special for for all of these actors. Yeah, yeah, that this feels very fresh. Uh, there, there is something about the character, the interpretation, the way that they portray the character when they're doing their first one. I feel that as well. He looks very young in this film. 
He does. Yeah. He does. Mmm. Tasty. Mm. Precipitation. I, I also like to add a touch that when when Bond finally fucks up at the embassy, at the end of end of the chase scene, there actually is repo- repercussions this time. Like, like this, this is one of the Bond films where Bond's antics really do cause an in-movie verse political crisis. Yeah, it doesn't do anything, Henrik. He just gets some shit from M and then he is off to continue his mission. Well, at, at least, at least M makes the notion that du- during the better, better days, the double O's were smart enough to defect at this point. You are, you are right, Henrik, but I can't believe it took this long for Bond to be rep- reprimanded for his actions. Yeah, here we are. But hey, the shift's boat is waiting, so it starts <laughs> with Lady... <laughs> what? <laughs> so Lady is coming out of water, and what David Arnold is playing during this scene is very much reminding me of Die Another Day music. It has the same sound, most definitely. But we are introduced to Lashif, and there's nothing sinister going on, but his <laughs> eye is bleeding. Dude, dude, dude is perfectly normal here. <laughs> Some stuff with the canal of the of the tear eye, duct. tear duct, and I felt that this was kind of this is not in the novel. This is something that you just have to add because it's written by Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, so you have to have these caricaturic characters in. Even if you're making a more grounded James Bond adventure, you're just gonna do it. Like Tom mentioned, he wouldn't be a Bond villain if he wouldn't have some kind of a physical deformity or defect. I really don't care for that. I I really care for great performances and some kind of a great character quality. It doesn't have to be something physical to me. Yeah, but there's always some kind of quirk, isn't there? Yep, there yeah, is. Yeah, but, but how did you feel when you first saw this quirk? Like you were like, oh my god, this is stupid. Uh, no, it's actually very good. I I, uh, I thought very um, mm. very original. Yeah, I felt that it was forced. No, it's not forced, Carrie. It is. You know what the fuck you're talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I do. I made this podcast. Oh, sorry. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, put you in your place. Okay, okay. you can put, put me back in my box. Yeah. See you in one month. Oh, no. Oh, that's how we do this podcast. Oh, so, so... Okay. Anyone who disagrees has to return next month. Has to leave. Uh, huh? <laughs> <laughs> we had some listener feedback about GoldenEye episode. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, we had some listener feedback about GoldenEye episode, and it was really weird. We wish I could find this for for this occasion. Maybe I can. Just give me a second. It was so funny. Uh. I'm, I'm, I'm treading it already. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a listener feedback on this this podcast. It can't be anything positive. <laughs> Here. Okay. So, Mister Stath says that I like I like the length of this one. It's very rare to have episodes this long and this in depth. But I have to say, the lead host just sounds dot 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 openly contemptuous of both the guest from the suits of James Bond and the film at points. It's one thing to not think much of a film. What? But at points, it basically just feels he's almost yelling the film is a shit show and expecting agreement from all. Did I do that? Yeah, well, that, that's basically your, your go-to motive. <laughs> but I recommended it and I, I, I was <laughs> saying that it's a great film. Where is this coming from? Like, you know, 
As, as a first thing to, to kind of improve the quality of, of this podcast, I think we all should agree that Curry is the Antichrist. Like literally the Antichrist. Yeah, sorry, Curry, can you clarify? Did the guy say that you was contemptuous of the the suit guy? The guest. Yeah, that I was contemptuous towards the, the guest from the suits of James Bond. Oh, I thought you meant me. Okay, okay. Um... <laughs> I was I was the guy who was shaking in the corner here and like oh, I hope I get everything right because I don't know like like this guy is like the, the knows a hell of a lot about suits and I don't so I was just trying to get through this whole interview and I was respecting him very much throughout the entire podcast. Yeah, well, not according to that dude. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, you know. When you get famous, you just have to ignore <laughs> all the feedback. Yeah, all all, all the fame we have. Otherwise, you go crazy. Please don't review us, people. <laughs> Do not leave a review unless it's good. <laughs> Lashik says that there's a 17.4% chance of his opponent winning this match at the boat. 16. 16. 16? I think so, yeah. I think he's at 17.4. I was wondering, what does he have a calculator in his head? Uh, no, he's... yeah. M says he's a chess genius and a math genius. Yeah. Okay. But, uh, okay. Fine, I guess that's fair enough. So, so that's ba- that's basically the kind of a motif behind the whole banking and the stock market, and e- even Lesir's grand plan of winning the money back in the po- poker tournament. In the book, he has a benzodrine inhaler, but I think what he has here is not sniffing into his nose. It's just some kind of a meter dose inhaler, MDI, asthma inhaler. But I might be wrong with that. No, you're right. Because I use the same inhaler. Oh. Not the very same inhaler. Like, I don't use Le Chief's inhaler, but I do have an inhaler. <coughs> okay. So he's asthma. Not, asthma. not snorting cocaine. No. Yeah. no. I, I, I've heard the rumor, which I haven't been able to, to confirm. Do the inhalers actually count as, as doping? In- uh, no. No, 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 no. Okay. Okay. As far as I'm aware, it simply opens up the um, the passage of the throat so you can breathe easier. Yeah, and I, I, I've heard that that kind of a, would be qualified as an as an illegal trick in, in professional sports. Because oh, that, that oh, okay. help uh, you to get more air intake in your lungs. Oh, I have no idea. Unless she sees the article based on the Madagascar embassy explosion. And gets the first information about uh, James Bond. Then we got to M's quarters, where he she is very furious, like, Christ, I missed the Cold War scene. Filmed in Strahov Monastery in Czech Republic. Looks very English. Yeah. Yeah. We get to M's house. Bond has hacked into M's computer. And I believe he's tracking down the sending location of the SMS. I, I guess so. I've never actually been able to to confirm what Bond is is looking at M's computer. But the thing goes <laughs> fast, so fast. Bond closes the lid so fast that I've never gotten a clear picture of what the <laughs> doing. Pornography. <laughs> Most likely. <laughs> yeah, I I figured that that would be the only logical solution because then he goes on his little trip to Bahamas. The only reason for that would be that he would know actually where the SMS was first sent, and then he can go in to check some security camera footage and uh, pinpoint it even further. 
Yeah, that kind of does make a lot of sense. But it's very ambiguous, you can't say. So apparently M has a private elevator, and this is the angriest M that we have ever seen her. Uh, that is natural. Somebody has broken into her house. We wanted to question him, not to kill him! So, yeah. Did we ever find out how James Bond broke into M's house and how he gets all these details? No, that's a that's a, a spycraft secret. Yeah. Never explained exactly how Bond can get into a house. Just like M's first name is the secret that won't be exposed in this film. But in Skyfall, I think the name is Show. I'm not 100% certain. But anyways, all together, the, the M's house or M's apartment scene, it, it is kind of a weird animal. Mm. All together, like there, there's a lot of elements which I don't quite understand. How did they work and why were they in in film? Like this is this is most intrusive bond that we have had in in the franchise. Breaking into your boss's apartment or house is it's one of those golden lines that Bond has never broken before, and it's kind of a weird that that Bond here in in the Craig run is willing to go that far in 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 this pissing contest with with M and also on top of that the fact that the logistics how Bond managed to break into M's house and what information Bond is digging from M's computer enough that is all is ever shown to you which kind of makes that makes this scene I, I don't know it, it's it's teetering to on going too far it's the first time that we see M's apartment and it uh, more contributes to this uh, character's recklessness. It, it it does, it does. But at, at the same time, I, I also do kind of feel that this, this is, even with the recklessness, this is, this may be taking taking the recklessness too far. But this is, the, the danger put, Bond puts himself into in this, in this scenario, it's kind of a, off the charts because Bond has just fucked up the previous mission. He's already in bad terms with his boss, and now he's breaking into her personal space, into her house. I'm not sure if I'm completely impressed by the acting of Judy Dench in this scene or how she was instructed here because it goes from it goes into three ends. So first there is this: we wanted to quest- question him, not kill him. So extremely furious. Then she sits down, says in a very calm voice, Bond, this might be too much for a blunt instrument to understand. And then when he leaves with the elevator, she's like, don't ever break into my house again. And what you see as the last frames of that shot, it looks like Judy Dench is smiling, like saying it a bit of a, a bit of an irony. Like, in my opinion, it's okay what you state. I secretly want you to break into my apartment. Right! So, I'm not sure if M should behave this way. Maybe she should have been angry all the way. Yeah, kind of a feeling-wise, it, it does kind of make logic. Like, there's from from furious to condescending to kind of accepting. That, that's yeah. kind, of, kind of the emotional path that M takes. In in the scene, I I, I don't know. May, I I do feel that maybe she should have been more strict when when she states that never break into my house again. Maybe she could have been 
very strong against James Bond for most of the scene, and then at the last shot she could have could have shown a little bit of a smile, like I still trust you and all. Maybe yeah, maybe yeah. Then again, apparently she does still trust Bond great deal because right after Bond has made an kind of kind of an international political cook up and made a mess of things and already has gotten himself in, in bad terms with MI6, then Bond can just mysteriously go into some place without telling his supervisors where he's going. And I, I guess he's not on, on a mission and that's okay to M. So it, it kind of switches from M being extremely angry, angry with Bond and kind of a Bond needing to take things a bit more careful in order not to get kicked off the MI6 and find himself all of a sudden to be jobless, into Bond once again being Bond, and I'm guessing going off the grid once a fucking again. Almost going rogue once yeah. again. Yeah. Because, yeah, because MI6 has not actually given a go for Bond's next step, to, that, for the next step that Bond takes in the film. But that's kind of also the reason why James Bond is able to be so good, because he's not listening to his supervisor all the time. Takes his rogue missions, and then at the end of the day, he's just going to be pat on the back. Like, good job for not following my orders. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good, good, good job for not doing what you were told. So we get to the Ocean Club. Bond is starting to dress more smart. There's a custom-made shirt in use. Security cameras... He compares the timestamps of the SMS to the security camera footage. And of course, the SMS, I guess the signal from the GPS was so accurate that you can see and pinpoint that this person must have been in front of the security camera at this moment, so it's worth looking into in Ocean Club. But never mind that, because we have a beautiful plan to finish off the scene, and uh, boy, is she beautiful. This is the person who is... Uh, that James Bond is discussing where he might be able to find this person that he's looking for. What? No comments on the most beautiful lady of the film? Nah, she's in she, she, she's in customer service service oh, profession. Vesper, Vesper is, is. But fun. but if I, I would be com- if I would be compelled for you guys to like this person, well, no, darn. But hey, we are getting to the beach. This is southwest end of Nassau. New Providence, where we are introduced to Solange. And name is inspired by Solange de Prairie, a lady in the Bahamas who visited Xanadu in 1962. Which would require another podcast to discuss about, but just so you know, some worthless trivia. And bondits rising from the ocean, a la Ursula Andres, in short swimming trunks. As short swimming trunks as possible, actually. Made by La Perla. Which is kind of a mm, clever twist on, on the scene. Yeah, it's nice that we're getting this. And we got actually a title sequence that doesn't have a lot of, if any, naked ladies. So we're starting to do something else a bit. Kind of mixing mixing these uh, gender roles up, maybe. A bit, a bit. Not, not that much in the end, though, but... There is some advance that is actually happening. Also, when it comes to Bond ladies, there there is there is some evolution in, in oh, the, yeah. the characters that they are playing. Yeah, it's it's not necessarily the 
kind of a groundbreaking phenomena that everybody made it out to be when the film came out. Because I, I would argue that, for example, Golden Eye had a pretty strong bond, a bad Bond girl in, in Famke Janssen. <laughs> mm. We know mm. that you want to bring Famke Janssen to each Bond episode. Uh, I, 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 I'm kind of a dead set on finding a way for the rest of, rest of the Bond run. Yeah, but she has to change her behavior, you know. She can't go strangling people all the time. <laughs> right, it's uh, hard to work with that kind of a lady at the casino. Well, it just, yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> it just depends on whether or not do you always enjoy a good squeeze. <laughs> I can imagine that they could have had very hot love scenes with Famke Janssen and Daniel Craig. Yeah, that, that would have been kind of like two aggressive people going at each other. <laughs> now we wake Em in bed and there's a mysterious partner in Em's bed. We never really know who that person is. And uh, what I figured out is was just that it's only her husband. But later in Was It Skyfall, she tells that her husband died quite some time ago. Maybe it was kind of a one-night thing from Tinder, you know. Yeah, that's just disgusting. <laughs> what, what, M, M or Tinder? M. On M <laughs> or Tinder. Admit it, you're thinking about what kind of profile pictures she's having. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. We get to Casino Hotel and Solange is in pomegranate color dress, which is supposed to give a nice contrast against the green palm tree greenery, Bahamas backdrop. And of course, it was a very beautiful dress that Lindy Hemming chose for her. I think it's one of the best ones in the franchise. We meet Dimitrios at the gambling table. But not only Dimitrios. At the gambling table, you have the actual, the wife of the man who owned the Bahamas Islands, Diane. And this is the same lady who is in Thunderball in Nassau where she's dancing for a moment with Sean Connery's James Bond. This is the lady that says that, You are all mad! And then uh, Fiona Vulpe comes and uh, gets rid of this lady and dances with James Bond. Okay, I, I never picked up on that. Apparently the, the only reason that she got the role in Thunderball was, of course, that she was the, you know, the, the rich wife of the owner of the islands. But yeah. Dimitrios loses the car in the game. Oh, and the parking ticket as well. There's a fantastic scene that follows this. When Daniel Craig is in front of the hotel, I believe, and he's trying to convince Solange to join him. There was a great character analysis about this scene, and it's it's so true. It's so true that this is one of the best scenes of the entire film or the franchise, because it's showing James Bond, Daniel Craig... Very sure of himself. Yeah, he, he, he never shows that he would get disappointed about the answers that the lady is giving. He just completely ignores what the lady is first doing, ignoring his offers. He just keeps on pushing and pushing with that very affirmed face. And then he finally gets what he wants. So that shows you the strength of the character. It's, it's a scene where he says... Could I give you a lift home? No, that would really set him over the edge. I'm afraid I'm not that cruel. Maybe you're just out of practice. And then she laughs. And how far is your home? Very, very close. One drink. 
and he just keeps on staring at Solange with those with those eyes without breaking a sweat. I enjoy it very much. This is some great dating advice for you guys. I most definitely doubt that one. <laughs> I, I I I can believe that in two, today's world that would be a really great restriction order advice for us. So maybe just better to go with the must have hit the fuel line from License to Kill. Solange in a hotel room with James Bond. There's this line, uh, what was it related to? Bond goes like, because then they'd be bad. I'm sorry, but I, I instantly saw connections in my head to Die Another Day end lines. Especially when you're bad. Bad. <laughs> <laughs> bad. Oh yeah, let's get let's get this dialogue. You like married women, don't you, James? It keeps things simple. What is it about bad men? You, my husband. I had so many chances to be happy. So many nice guys. Why can't nice guys be more like you? Well, because then they'd be bad. And roll credits. Bad. Bond orders chilled Bollinger, Grandan, and the Beluga Caviar. Lady decides that this is not up to my standards and leaves. So we get to Miami. Does she actually leave or does she go to bedroom? Well, because the, she, the, the, the she... actually actually two takes you can take from that scene. The first one is that that the lady is is leaving Bond's Bond's place and Bond's Bond orders the caviar for himself. Or the second take that you can read is that the lady is actually heading for Bond's bedroom, expecting to have some nice sexy sex, and Bond just orders some caviar for her and just leaves her there. I took it that she leaves the place and then Bond takes this food for himself and then leaves for Miami. Because but I yeah. have exactly the opposite reading of, of, of the scene. This is a bit confusing, yeah. Multifaceted in interpretation. In the Body Worlds Museum in Miami, you see these bodies in the gambling table, and these are actually real bodies on display. Yeah. Oh, I know, it's fucking cool. <laughs> so creepy. But there's a little bit of a knife fight with Dimitrios. Dimitrios gets put out of the commission. Therefore, we get to airport. Now he has the phone of Dimitrios, so he's able to further track the next bad guy. The airport stuff is shot in Czech Republic, England, and Florida, kind of all over the place. In the commentary track, the Alexander Witt, the second unit director, second unit DP, talks about shooting in Czechoslovakia, like multiple times. That was really annoying. It was six to eight weeks of shoot at the airport. There's nice front somersault with a twist when James Bond gets into the... Uh, tanker at the airport he has followed this guy and now he's at the tanker and trying to get rid of this guy and his bombing plot police car flying 140 feet in the air a little bit of cgi applied for 747 in some moments to make scenes match up when it because it was shot all over the place and then finally the car is stopped with cables next to the plane and unbeknownst to the bad guy the bomb is now attached to the to him so that makes for a cool off-screen explosion. It does, and I, 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 unlike some of us here in the studio, did actually enjoy quite a lot about the airport fight. Yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was this red traditional James Bond bullshit moment, and 
I think they could have just left it out, try to think of something a little bit more grounded than jumping over tankers and but it's the it's the thing that you just have to do. Once they are actually fighting inside the tanker, I felt that there was nice brutality to the, to the actual fight. Mm. Mm. Yeah, well, the um, yeah, the uh, airport scene again would be very very good if it if it didn't go on for so damn long. Yeah, there's that, and I think it's unnecessary to have action. At this moment, it's something for the kids. I felt you just have to do it. Henrik, is this something for the kids? Mm, I, I I would say no. I, I can see where Curry is coming coming from with his argument. I mean that there <laughs> the, there is most definitely there is a mo- modern audience's motif mm. and and. And, and it's kind of kind of a rhythm thing that like today in in spy action adventures you must have fight scene to happen occasionally. But yeah, I I I didn't, I didn't get the feeling that the scene was here just because of that. Like it does also serve a narrative function. This is the the low point for Le Chiffre where after which he has to take the Casino Royale route. And I, I did kind of feel that it did fit the film. Like, I, I did get the feeling that the film actually benefited from having an action scene now. I think it's the low point of the film, in fact. Just imagine reading the novel and then seeing this and then you're in the theater like, okay, what the fuck are you doing at this point? Yeah. Then but... at times with the novel you were asked, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah, okay. And of course, so many of these novels have been changed into something completely else on screen. I get that. And Casino Royale is one of the least offenders. Yeah, it, it still stays. I, I would, it's, it's one of the fi- films that, stay, they, that stays most true to Fleming's source material. Even with all the changes that it does. It, still, it kind of still changes relatively little in the end. Which is kind of shocking. When you're coming from Diana today and uh, icicle surfings, and now you have something that is, I mean, it's 2006, so you gotta have action, 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 a few explosions. But considering that, it was quite stripped down. It, it was, it was kind of unbelievably so. Like, you, you did voice your displeasure with the airport scene. Uh, Tom made it clear that he felt that it kind of dragged on too long. Uh, but e- even even with those notions, even with the notions that our airport scene was e- either too long or unnecessary, I that the film in total is kind of a it, it's surprisingly kind of a strict in in the usage of action. There is surprisingly little of it in the film. Yeah, actually, I said wrong. There is even a worse sequence coming after this airport scene. Let's talk about it later. Le Chiffre is now Le, Le is now counting his losses, and someone has talked. He notes, "Time for embriefing in Albany House, southwest end of Nassau, once again in New Providence." Bond has pretty amazing makeup on his face with those cuts. I think they're really iconic. Yeah. I think it's uh, yeah, I love those cuts for some reason. He has made cu- quite a body count. M notes. And there's a nice 
Nice shot at Craig in the in the scene as the last shot. There's a lot of beautiful shots. Beautiful location, beautiful shots. That's how it usually goes. But it's a great scene and there is unfortunately this ow implant which with with which they can track James Bond, which is not bad yet. Just wait until the until you get to Spectre and Smart Blood edition of this. Yeah, the, the implant still is, is kind of a relatively small offender, like you said. It's it's still it, it's quite believable and it makes quite a lot of sense, especially if you contrast that against Spectre and all, all, all the science nonsense that they throw you in your face in that film. What the hell is digital blood? Digital blood cells. I get it. I, I, I guess it's blood cells that have been photoshopped. <laughs> Truly terrifying 1984 technology. Train with Vesper, one of the best scenes of the film. In book, it notes how Vesper has brilliant protuberances, both front and back. But then Bond also notes when he hears about his new aid in this mission, that she would be a lady. He thinks to himself, bitch. And then once again, bitch. This type of language is kind of cut out in this film. I think I think it benefits the film, so good good job there. Altogether, the whole chemistry between Bond and Vesper, it's, it's quite heavily changed in, in the film and you contrast it to the book. Yeah, I really love this analysis of James Bond. It's about seeing through Bond. As I've understood, this is mostly written by Paul Haggis, the guy who came to do some rewrites for Neil Purvis and Robert Wade. So this is kind of uh, breaking down the character of James Bond. Uh, Haggis was thinking, what would be, what would James Bond really want to experience with a lady? What would really make him love this this Eva Green's character, Vesper Lind? And Haggis decided that it's she has to get under his skin a bit in a way that he kind of breaks down his character, understands what he is, and makes him kind of uncomfortable, perhaps. And it it, it does make quite a lot of sense character-wise. Like Bond, Bond as a character is is very strong. He's very dominant in basically in all the situations. So it kind of a, it, it makes a logical sense that. In another person, Bond could appreciate and value to to be able to find that that same strong willingness and kind of a not uh, and a nature to not give in to him. Yeah, very interesting. Also, what editor Stuart Baird said about this scene or dialogue scenes in general is that he noted that it might be even harder to cut scenes with dialogue as opposed to maybe the airport action sequence, because there is a certain rhythm that you just have to get right here. And I think he succeeded fantastically also when you look at the casino sequences later on. He's doing a lot of things, of course, the DP and the camera crew as well, but they're doing a lot of tricks here to keep the casino scenes, the game, interesting and succeed as well. Yeah, and that's not really an easy trick to pull off, it's especially in, in action-adventure spy film, to to keep uh, scenes which which more or less are just a bunch of assholes sitting around the table playing cards somehow interesting. Right. 
and me not understanding Baccarat or even Texas Hold'em for that matter, uh, it's it's really hard to kind of keep your interest sometimes in the book. Texas Hold'em is an easier game, and also because during that time, and poker was quite popular at the time, I heard, so that might have also contributed why they chose Texas Hold'em. Most basic, definitely, yeah. yeah. I, and more specifically, Texas Hold'em had become extremely popular at the time. Like this, this, the film came out, if I remember correctly, at the same time when, for example, gangster movies and and UK gangster movies and and gritty low life gangster movies were once again rising up and becoming more popular. And well, Hold'em was something that you could see there. Poker was something that. You could see in those films, but on top of that, also the the televised World Championship poker tournaments had started to become all, all the craze. And basically, Texas Hold'em was also the game that they were playing on those tournaments. So in that sense, the the change in the game kind of a I, I would say was dictated by the times. But apparently, we are very much in love, Henrik. With each other or, or with Texas Hold'em? No, this is just my ham-fisted uh, bridge to the <laughs> next scene, so we get the car ride to Casino, where we have more of this excellent dialogue. We could, of course, break down some of the dialogue, if we have any of those noted down, but I really enjoy these gambles that Eva Green and Daniel Craig take here. It's like two, two very articulated and smart people seeing who is going to win this verbal battle. Actually, even way too smart when you look at the train suite sequence and them not even skipping a beat, delivering uh, fantastic lines to each other. But it's beautiful to watch. And it's a little bit too... It sounds like a kind of kind of a written language at points, but still highly enjoyable. It's, it's almost like this podcast, if you would... Uh, except in here it's too smart people instead of two doofuses. Exactly. Fortunately. For your listening pleasure. <laughs> we meet Mathis. We also meet Michael Wilson, Henrik. There's a cameo of Michael Wilson, who is one of these baddies of Le Chiffre, who gets locked up by police quite immediately. And who you mostly don't even notice in, in the film. And if you do... <laughs> You, you most likely are wondering who the hell is that. Yeah, I noticed this cameo in the theater. I've been watching these films for too long. Okay, went completely past my radar when I originally saw the film. Yeah, it's kind of hilarious seeing this guy popping up everywhere during the franchise. Finally, in the book, there is this Dr. No moment when uh, James Bond puts the, the piece of his hair, he, he puts the piece of hair in front of the closet to kind of to to put it there in case somebody breaks in then he could see if somebody has been moving stuff around his room and that's part of the casino royale novel doesn't happen here but that's the doctor no thing yeah also doesn't happen in the franchise altogether except in doctor no yeah i really love this line <laughs> when they enter the casino and uh, eva green says that get the next one there is not enough room for you and your ego. Here it's, I suppose, qu- quantum. It, which it, later it is, yeah, it's in in here in in Casino Royale, an unknown criminal syndicate 
or something like that. And the unknown forms into quantum in the next film. Which gets discarded and uh, is kind of some kind of a sub name for Spectre later because they got they acquired the rights to use the word Spectre or the name Spectre, the criminal organization from the earlier James Bond films. Yeah, or then not. Like it's it's hard to say what the fuck happens to quantum. And, and yeah, what the... quantum actually is supposed to be. And so the Sp- Spectre's idea is kind of to glue it everything together from the previous adventures. Except Quantum of Solace. And that that decision, like the decision in Spectre to glue everything together and then try to make you, the audience forget Quantum of Solace ever happening is is actually one of the key things why it gets so goddamn hard try to understand and piece together what is quantum as a group and what happened to quantum as a group and what is the unknown syndicate in Casino Royale. It gets a bit confusing, but this is the this is my understanding, that they wanted to change it to Spectre because they had the opportunity. Yep, yeah, mo- most likely, most likely. Like, I, I'm willing, but once again, uh, I, I have to stress this, uh, this out already in, in kind of a... Did you give a, give a hint of what might happen when we finally st- tackle Spectre in the podcast? The, the decision of, of the film Spectre to try to pretend that Quantum of Solace never happened is something that kind of ends up ruining the whole Daniel Craig or, or the continuity in Daniel Craig Bond films. How do you reckon that it's ignoring it? Because you still have, what is this bad guy's name in Quantum of Solace? Anyway, his face is shown there on, I believe, computer screens and also in the shooting range at the end of the film. But most of the time, basically, whenever the Spectre is making callbacks to earlier Bond films, it's making, or or Daniel Craig Bond films, it's making... It's making those callbacks to Casino Royale and and to Skyfall. Yeah. And and mostly in all, almost all of the callbacks, there are a couple of 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 instances where this does not happen. But most of the time, in all the callbacks, Quantum of Solace is mysteriously missing in all four. Nobody talks about Quantum. Nobody talks the bad guys of Quantum. Nobody ha- talks about the events that happened in Quantum. Critically, we know that Quantum of Solace wasn't exactly a success, so it might be also kind of an idea to just leave it out. Yeah, yeah. Which might work if the film trying to pull that off wouldn't be Spectre. <laughs> exactly. But, Tom, is the casino game even needed with with less shift? If they already have enough evidence of the of the guy being uh, involved with the crime syndicate and trying to pull off this, this this money laundering mission, gathering money for himself, for his criminal deeds, then shouldn't they just, you know, put him into cuffs and get him the hell out of the casino? No need to play any games. Yeah, but this is James Bond, you know. It's, uh, it's not always down to logic. There's an excellent parody online where you can see it. M is like explaining this elaborate plot that the chief is going to be at this casino and you need to be there and beat him. And then Bond is like, eh, but can't we just kind of lock him up, you know? Yeah. But, but that that wouldn't be fun. Uh, how about 
that being said, this is the best scene in the film. It the is, casino parts. Yes, indeed. Mm. My my take on the situation was that MI6 never had like real solid good evidence of Lesiv's complicity in the crimes and the acts. Like like they had a lot of really really strong beliefs, really really strong theories that really did were based on real facts and real knowledge of the situations, but they 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 didn't have the smoking gun and strong enough evidence that they could just arrest the chief and you know if they would just just track his ass to court, the chief would just walk away. And because of that, they kind of needed the chief to come to them and to ask for sanctum from MI6. Then again, MI6 is really willing with the treasury to fund James Bond to still take on this guy with some real solid cash, even though they might not have all the proof. Well, yeah, but in, in that case, if, if Bond would manage to, to win the game and rob the chief the victory and the, and the, all the millions that the chief is going after in the, in the poker tournament, in that case, the chief would carve all of, all of a sudden find his past customers, especially the, the previously seen warlords coming to knock, to knock down his door, asking their money back which Le Chiffre couldn't give, and because of that, they are counting on that. At that point, Le Chiffre sees no, no alternative except to actually come to MI6 himself and ask for, the, for their help. Yeah. Like, MI6 is never actually planning on arresting Le Chiffre at any point. They just want to make him desperate enough that, you know, he's willing to make any deal that MI6 throws at, uh, throws at him. Like yeah, you you give us you name all your accomplices, you name name all your contacts, you tell how you do your business and how the syndicate works, and in return we give you a nice safe house in some shithole small village. I was watching this South Korean TV series where there's a traveling group of South Koreans going to France, and then this package tour gets to. A casino and the guide of the tour explains that this is the place where they shot the casino royale scenes for casino royale the film which is absolute absolute bullshit because this was shot in Karlovy Vare in Czech Republic so nowhere near France I don't know where that was coming from but I guess it was just used as a ham-fisted added excitement effect on the TV series but that is doubling for Montenegro Casino. Eva Green is ver- wearing this very sexy, or as the costume designer would say, like this sexy vampire look with this evening dress that everybody is drooling at, at the casino. We have a close-up of Eva Green, which cross-dissolves into the poker table. It's quite unusual in new films, in my opinion, to cross-fade into anything. Like, it's, it's not a fade to black, it's a crossfade between pictures. And I thought it gave it a little bit of kind of a classical vibe, a classical crossfade vibe that you... Kind of a callback to older James Bond films at the poker table. Then James Bond puts some kind of a tracker in the MDI, the asthma inhaler, I believe. I'm, I'm guessing so, he puts a listening device in, in somewhere. Right, listening device makes sense. 
because next we're going to pause the game and there's going to be these black assassins in the hotel room of uh, Le Chiffre and the stairway fight ensues because they are able to hear the, the uh, earpiece of James Bond in the corridor. And of course this gets a little bit bullshitty because there's a gun gun fired in the casino, nobody bats an eye and a huge noise from, from this. But admittedly this is probably the best place where to have a hand-on-hand -hand combat if you're gonna fight anywhere, some staircase that nobody's going to frequent. Yeah, besides, it's it's nice casino, so warlords and, and Russian gangsters are kind of your go-to customers. And easy as pie, you just put these baddies into a closet and Evergreen informs team members. And problem solved, back to poker table. But I really like how the, the scenes make James Bond look like. All kinds of adversaries and he's able to always come on top. In the book, you had something a bit different around these parts in the story. You had an explosion, but it was an explosion that was either outside of the casino or outside of James Bond's hotel. There was uh, two guys. One of them was carrying a blue suitcase, and the other one was having a red suitcase. And one of them was supposed to be the bomb, and the one of them was supposed to be the, the suitcase to, to trigger the bomb. But it turned out that they were both bombs, so they would get rid of these two guys who were trying to do some damage around the area. So there would be no proof of Smirch's actions. This does not happen in the film in any way. And once again, one of the great scenes of the film, when Bond is healing his wounds after the fight, just having a little bit of something to drink, cleans him himself up, puts on another suit, and comes back to the poker table. Yeah, I also like that they kind of a small touch of, of how Bond takes his drink as he is healing from the fight because he kind of just quickly pours it, pours it in the glass and just gallops it down on one go. And the, that kind of, to me, it, it showcases kind of the, the emotional struggle that Bond himself has to go through after just brutally killing two guys. Like there, there is that adrenaline still pumping in his his system which often happens when you are when you are in a fight or or, or life and death situation and to me that read as as bond using alcohol to kind of alleviate that adrenaline suddenly dropping down true he's acting kind of like a machine just get the job done and get back to the business well i, I would say that in in that moment he actually acts more humane like bond obviously being Still, kind of in the zone in, in, in that fight, on being behaving body language wise extremely aggressive before he can get back to the table. I would say that's kind of a, that that's one of the humanizing touches that that happened in the film and in in Daniel Craig Bond's every now so often. True, he's a human character, but able to very well keep up this macho kind of an image. Of himself and just concentrate on his mission laser sharp back to the game to Salon Privé and we're introduced to the drink Vesper I can wholeheartedly recommend at least the version that I got tonight I, I must confess that when I heard that you were coming to the Casino Royale episode with, with some hang-ups hang concerning the differences that the film takes from the book. 
I was actually betting most of my my chips on you making a fuss about the fact that they changed the game that Owen is playing from Packerat to Texas Hold'em. Not a problem for me because I don't understand card games whatsoever. So they could be playing whatever they wish as far as I'm concerned. Okay, because I, I was most definitely certain that that's going to be a major hang-up hang for you. <laughs> and that is in, in films defense the switch actually makes quite a lot of sense because Packerat as a card game is one of the dullest and most most stupidest card game that you can have and it, so i've heard yeah like it's it's all luck and no skill game and the okay. fact that that bond that's the casino game that bond most Refers kind of in the end ter- turns out speaking not so favorably on on Bond's behalf. Mm. Vesper is in the shower. Looks like she has been met with quite a trauma of the fight with the black guys. Apparently, there is some electronic morphing going on in the image. I'm not sure if it's r- related to blocking out the camera operators in the reflection of the door of the shower. Nevertheless, you can't see the camera operators. They are also under a black sheet to cover them up further. But this is uh, once again a great scene with the dialogue. What was it? I think this blood is not coming off from my hands. And Bond tries to help with that. And I kind of like how, how he comes to, goes to the shower, just not caring about his suit. The most important thing here is to help out Vesper. The sweet. No, no, it's weird. <laughs> and there we have it. <laughs> oh, come on. The guy has suits to spare, so why not? Nope. Weird. Yeah, the lady's in distress. Come on. We, uh, nice, right, weird. right. I'm actually agreeing with Henrik here. What's happening tonight? Vesper <laughs> 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 goes to sleep, and Mathis is at the balcony, and there's bodies arranged into the car. Back to the game. Apparently it's very impossible to storyboard a casino game, so this is where a lot of the editing trickery comes into play. You have to shoot apparently everything you can think of, from guard, special close-ups to different facial expressions, a lot of editorial tightening going on, Bond loses, oops. And just like in the book, he just freezes at the table and just keeps sitting there, staring into nothingness. Daunted. Balcony with Vesper. Look into my eyeballs, honey. You know I can beat this guy. Give me some more money. Let go of my arm. And regards to the money, there actually is is quite a nice touch that the film makes on the implications of Bond losing in in the game. Like them mentioning that that basically every cent that Bond would lose would be the government officially funding terrorism. Yeah. It sounded a bit bit of a desperate attempt on Bond's part. Maybe a bit of a ridiculous writing as well. I, I don't know. I, I liked it a hell of a lot. Like, like to me, it kind of highlighted the fact that Bond's actions, they do have indirect consequences. This balcony with Vesper, uh, as far as I remember, this is not something that is in the book. And it plays a little bit differently where... where I, I think there is no conflict between them two about this at all. 
And Felix Leiter also plays a little bit differently in the whole thing. Yeah, just read the book. I'm not going to give you all the details. Wasn't Felix a white guy in Goldfinger? Yep. Yeah, and all the other films except this Casino Royale onwards. Oh, oh yeah. The license to kill, yeah. Yeah. But here is the homie from Langley, introduced. In the book, when uh, the Vesper drink is ordered, that's when he meets the Felix Leiter about around the poker table somewhere there. Felix's ear is doing something goofy here, some kind of a Mr. Bean effect when he's talking to James Bond. So he gets the funding and it's back to the game. We're starting to see that there's uh, different kinds of lenses used now to make every bit of this tournament to seem a little bit different. I understand now they are using wider angle lenses and uh, there's a really great shot where Lashif is throwing the cards directly at the screen and the image kind of looks three-dimensional or something because they're using these lenses and it might even be my favorite shot. Poison. So as mentioned in the book Bond is threatened with a gun at the gambling table. There's just some French guy behind him. This is a pistol, so if you do anything stupid, and if you don't stop this game, I will shoot you right now. One, two, three, four. Ha <laughs> ha! I will put my seat backwards and you will fly who knows where. And this situation stops like that. And then everybody is confused and Bond is embarrassed and says something like, Yeah, I, I, I got a little bit dizzy during this high stakes game. So I'm fine now. Let's carry on. Yeah, I, I must say I like the poison more. Way more. Much more. There's the scene where Bond goes to the toilet. We're having some 45 degree angle turns with the camera. It's a little bit blurry. So Bond goes to the car for the defibrillator. The defibrillator. Fuck. Yeah, defib- it's a complete nightmare for Finnish. <laughs> <laughs> defibrillator. Yeah, yeah, the thing with the pads. <laughs> <laughs> and, and tries to kickstart his heart after ingesting this 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 this, this poison. Doesn't finish the job. Fortunately, Vesper does the job. Once again, great lines and th- throwing some more masculinity. Like, you're okay? Am I okay? As soon as I've won this game, I will go to the hospital. You're not seriously going back there. I wouldn't dream of it. Just goes back to the table. I'm sorry, that last hand nearly killed me. Great stuff. Best line. Best line. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it got applauded in the theater. Fantastic. It, it is most Bond line of the film. Yeah. Now the shots are getting tighter and tighter, changing lenses to less wide to amp up the tension, and he wins the game after a lot of eyeballing, trying to see the bluff. Yeah, really not trying to see the bluff that much. Like, than just being reckless. Uh, not even that. With, with those cards, with, with that river and with that turn, Bond already knows that he's going to win. Like there, there's, Bond himself knows that he's a sure, sure winner. There. Basically, the only trick that Bond anymore has to do is to make Le Chiffre go all in. And that's precisely that. But, but yeah, poker game-wise, Bond is... A certified winner right after the cards have been dealt. Followed by dinner with Vesper. 
private moment in the restaurant. Once again, this film is full of great dialogue and it doesn't cease here. One could say that it's getting a little bit too too philosophical, maybe too much of in-depth of character study from the both of their part during this scene, and it may seem a little bit artificial. What, what did you think? I don't see that argument at all. Okay. And Vesper excuses herself from the table to... Because she gets a call, or is the message supposed to be coming from Mathis, and she goes, goes outside, sees the car, and then the bad guys jump from behind the corner and get her into the car. And that's pretty much how it goes in the novel as well. Followed by a car chase. Uh-huh. In the book, of course, it's Bentley that is rolling. Where's my Bentley? Well, it's rolling. And there is they were using cannon to launch the Aston Martin into the air. They had quite a bit of trouble to get the Aston Martin flipping in the way that they wanted to. This was the third Aston Martin that they used in the final product to finally get it right. Like That's quite expensive filmmaking. Well, hey, if, if you have an open check... Yeah. Unless, of course, it was some kind of a fake Aston Martin. Yeah, it, it, it was Audi in real life. I thought that this car crash was a little bit over the top, but it was done for real. So it actually did those flips. So what are you going to do? Was with there a a, an actual driver inside of the car when, when it did those flips? I don't think so, but I'm not sure. Yeah, because... because... Was the torture real too? <laughs> don't think so. Bummer. Yeah, no co- no commitment at all. <laughs> but yeah, the torture. Yeah, the gar- car has done its flips and then they get to some shady warehouse type of thing where they hold boats. In the book, it goes like this, this that they force James Bond to undress himself, pointing the gun at him, and he sits to the chair himself. Let's chief keeps calling James Bond as my dear boy. Kind of trying to belittle this guy. Also serves James Bond coffee. And the rest of the coffee is just going all over James Bond's face. Mm. Mr. White also tells in the book to Bond after the torture that James Bond is lucky as he doesn't have orders to kill James Bond. So he survives. Also in the book, Mathis comes back and gives a check for Bond for the money. But anyway, the torture scene, yeah. It's in Bayrandov Studios in Czech Republic. There were full three-shot master close-ups that they shot separately of each actor doing their parts and then they combined them. They took four or five takes and a complex focus pull to finish it off when Lashiv gets the bullet into his head. Great scene. We haven't seen anything like this really before in this entire franchise. It's a very, it, it's a very painful scene. Yeah. But of course, since it's a James Bond scene, it has to make a little bit of a light touch, and it's fitting because it's James Bond. He kind of makes fun of the whole situation. And this is kind of the the ultimate macho moment of Bond. It kind of is, and it also turns once again into a more humane from Bond. Like it's it starts very macho when Bond is able to resist the torture and not give in to Le Chief. but then again it gets rather humane when Bond finally really do, looks concerned after Le Chief makes the threat against Vesper and there's that close-up on Bond's face on that moment. Yeah, that is great. 
And he does die scratching James Bond's balls. <laughs> <laughs> there is a deleted scene here called Rescue and Recovery. So after all this, Bond is rushed to the ER. Bond is in hospital bed and mumbling, no, no, not him, not Mathis. And he tries to grab scissors to kill Mathis. And then it continues to the yard where Mathis is continuing his interrogation of Bond, basically. But yeah, the clinic. In the book, Bond is taken to a nursing home at Royal. I believe Royal is supposed to be some kind of a city in the book. Here we don't exactly know where Bond is being taken to, but clearly it's some kind of a nursing home. And Bond tells to Mathis the location where money is, money is hidden inside Casino Royale in the book. But here he just gets zapped. James Bond already knows what is going on with this guy and he's taken into custody. Actually, in the book, as I understood it, Mathis is not a bad guy at all. He doesn't have this bad guy's role at all in the in the book. It's kind of a, also murky in the film whether or not Mathis really is the bad guy or if Bond is just wrong here in his judgment and it really is just Vesper. It continues being murky in Quantum of Solace when Mathis is throwing, thrown into the garbage can and takes a part in part of the James Bond operation. And uh, Maybe I just didn't pay enough attention, but I still don't understand what is their relationship and did he work for... Quantum, or did he not, and, or was he forced to do something uh, against his will? What's the deal? Yeah, uh, take, taking into account also what happens in Quantum, the final reading I had of Mathis is that he was not really part of the crew, and he was on Bond's side throughout the adventures. Like, And that would also tie in with, with Casino Royale, like in, in here, Bond would in the end, Bond would be wrong, mistrusting Mathis. But there is this line from Le Chiffre. There is no really reason for Le Chiffre to say something that is not accurate. He says that, I'm afraid that your friend Mathis is actually my friend Mathis. And to me, the way how I read that, I was also thinking about that line when, when now visiting the film. But the, my take was that Le Chiffre was at that time, he was lying to Bond and gaslighting him in order to still kind of hide the fact that the real mole in operation was Vesper. Just so that he can use the threat of violence against Vesper to, to influence Bond. Just in case that Bond doesn't break under torture. Wow, this is very thought out. It's, uh, it, it's kind of ironic that Bond is supposed to be this, this great reader of people, you know. Um, he completely fails to miss her, her um, treachery. If what Henrik said is true, yeah, yeah, that's true. Kinda, kinda. Especially now that they switched the game into Texas Hold'em, which, unlike Packerat, is supposed to be all about all about little clues and and the psyche of your opponents. Like Bond remarks in the film. In, in poker, you never play your hand. You play the man across from you, which kind of a once again, it, it does highlight Bond's skills as a as someone who can read persons, and he can't read Vesper for shit. I felt at times that in the book it was a bit too clear what was bothering Vesper Lind, and it took 
fucking ages before James Bond figured out what that is, that they were kind of torturing Vesper or using Vesper to get them to get to the money. In the book also, the the last third of the film, the third part of the film, it's very, it's it's kind of intimate, and there's there are these close scenes with Vesper and Bond, and they get to know each other properly and fall in love at the clinic. Here, of course, it's a film; it happens a little bit faster. Now we get to lying on the beach. This is supposed to be the Aegean Sea. It's shot in the Bahamas. And they discuss how they're going to spend the rest of their lives and sail to Venice somehow. And then he clocks on. And then he realizes with M's help that something's not right. Yeah, kind of on the last minute. Yeah. Imagine if M's phone call came 15 minutes before. Yeah. You know, when Bond was still with Vesper. Yeah. Or 15 minutes later, for that matter. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Meticulous timing. Yeah. So that's where the, the, the kind of a romantic moments end. Uh, Kissing in the hotel is in Barandov Studio and the lobby in the hotel is in National Museum of Prague. There was also one dropped scene where James Bond and Vesper Lund noticed the one-eyed guy in the lobby. And then Bond goes to ask about this guy, like, who is this guy from the conciliage and... He finds only out that this is some guy who is interested in a clock repair seminar in the hotel. <laughs> and that's also the case in the in the book, that he at least he is some kind of a expert in repairing clocks. Yeah, so Bond got the phone call now. Vesper has left the hotel. The treasury guy in M's room is Phil Mayhew from the crew of the film. So uh, Vesper is now dressed into this red dress it's supposed to be some kind of a homage to don't look now film where there's also a lady in a red dress henrik anything about that yeah it it, it is homage i i can see why they did it or more closely i really can really don't accept that both films take place in venice <laughs> i i i think i i always thought that that homage is kind of a non-needed like that the film doesn't have... Casino Royale doesn't really have anything anything to do with Don't Look Now, except the Venice, which Casino uses in the final moments, like the last 20 minutes. They thought that if they're going to send the pair into some romantic place, it would have to be Venice. Well, yeah, the James Bond franchise has been in Venice so many times that it's not even funny. So here we are again, and... Also, the red dress could be seen as something to give contrast to the rest of the people because nobody else is wearing such of a striking red dress, so it's easy to follow uh, Vesper Lind around. Yeah, it, it, it does make narrative sense to Bond be able to spot Vesper on a, on, in a crowd with that red dress. Like, if, if she would have dressed something like black trousers and a black jacket or anything beige... Yeah. That that would have been, it would have been impossible for Bond to actually spot her. She's walking there sometimes amongst real crowds who were not aware that they were being filmed. There's a great Bond silhouette when he's about to enter this little square where the showdown starts to happen with the one-eyed guy. And then we get to the goddamn collapsing building. God, I really hate this scene. 
I I I I can't stand this scene. It, it, it's kind of kind of cool, in my opinion, to see the building collapse in middle of Venice. It's also quite funny these days to see building collapse into ocean in Venice because Venice doesn't yeah. have any water anymore. <laughs> I saw Martin Campbell comment something on this scene. It felt a little bit like he was just doing damage control. He said, quote, This scene, it was an inspired idea because I had grave doubts about it to start with. I mean, okay, so house sinks, so what? You know, what does that mean? I didn't, um, I felt it wasn't spectacular, um, but as it turned out, it's probably the best sequence in the movie. And I totally disagree. It's the worst scene in the movie. I I didn't think it's it's the worst. I I don't even think that it's that bad of a sequence. I do kind of admit that it might contrast itself a bit orderly against all, all the previous moments in the film, which have been yeah. rather grounded cr- and kind of really low key. For yeah. Christ's sake, most of the film takes place in a goddamn casino, in a around a goddamn poker table. And now we have a collapsing building. I I do admit that there, there is a, a tiny change in, in scale that happens kind of all of a sudden. And there is something to be said maybe about the whole length of the film or, or just, you know, it always comes to pacing, not the length, like minute-wise, but the pacing. Well, you have this casino stuff, you have this torture, torture stuff. Now you switch gears completely and you go to Venice. And at this part, I always start to kind of I get a little bit sleepy at this point like I'm kind of starting to look for the ending of this film yeah and I I was hoping that this uh, whole Venice stuff would move a little bit faster especially because it's going to this uh, exploding building in which I really didn't care for they also didn't have any storyboard to film it because apparently Martin Gamble never had time to do to get to it or something Uh, for that I have to applaud I really can't tell it it's i guess it's shot fine but this is kind of the moment where i start to doze off a bit i mean yeah i i i guess oh i i would hazard to guess that the biggest problem with the venice sequence is that it's all of a sudden it's so extravagant like they they, they are in casino they are indoors they are on poker table and all of a sudden they are in the middle of going to venice and in a boat and yeah. it's, it's it's sunshine it's outdoors it's very nice and oh my god the the building is collapsing it's it's kind of a there there, there is a there's a huge tone change also also in the color scheme of the film like all, all the pre all the previous film including the airport sequence has been quite dark it's been colored with dark lighting and dark colors and all of a sudden it's really bright Venice sequence and that that change in tone kind of a telegraphs to the audience that this here now is the final sequence after this moment after they leave Venice it's gonna be end end credits and that might Mm -hmm. be the reason why people might find the Venice sequence going on too long and why they might snooze off and why they may get the feeling that the film should already end because the film itself kind of is telling you that we are closing off right now any minute now we are gonna end the film yeah i i just felt that i didn't need all this extravagance and and noise at this point anymore i mean we had been at the noisy scenes and i I think that was 
one kind of a high point when we got to the car chase and the torture. So we've kind of already been there. So now this is happening again. Yeah, yeah, that, that, and also the fact that Bond kind of cooks up it once again in Venice. Mm. Like, like back, back in, back in, back in at the casino, Bond managed to keep it quite the low key, managed to keep a low profile from, for most of it. The biggest kind of, kind of a crime that Bond was gonna, was about to do in, at, at the casino against being a professional secret and, and I, I emphasize secret agent was was the fact that he was about to go and just stab Le Chivre with stolen knife all of a sudden after he loses the game. And it's that moment when when Lighter comes up and stops Bond and Bond's managed to once again regain his cool and stay professional. In Venice, however, Bond all of a sudden is sinking down buildings. Yeah. Like, I'm betting my ass that MI6 once again got unparentedly noted of being in Venice after Bond managed to sink a goddamn building. And might I add once again the tanker scene at the airport? Uh, it's a little bit more higher level action than some kind of a casino sequence or fight at the at the corridor so these kind of stick out a bit from the all of the rest of the narrative uh, they they do they do and like partly that does tie in with with Bond's motive or Bond's nature of being impulsive and not really always think his actions through especially when his ego is in question and that that's kind of a, that that's the whole embassy sequence in in the beginning of the film where Bond causes an a political catastrophe because he just can't fucking get over the fact that he might lose the chase might lose mm. to another person and Bond gets reprimanded for that for not being professional and then you kind of just see Bond doing this exact same shit in the airport and in Venice where it's the exact same scenario happening again. Come to think of it, come to think of it, in, in the novel, Bond gets to this royal caretake house, and then uh, at some point, Vesper and Bond leave that place when Bond is adequately uh, in, in shape again, and they go to some kind of a hotel or resort, but it's not far from, from for example, Casino Royale or this caretaking facility. So maybe it could have benefited the film if they had just stuck around somewhere n- near the casino, so you wouldn't have this extreme change of locations all of a sudden. It might have actually benefited the film. Yeah. Like I, I, I do like the Venice sequence, and I do like the Venice action, as hokey as, as it is, but I also must confess... When the when the sequence starts, I I too do think that maybe you should have stayed at the casino or at least in the same goddamn country. Yeah, why did they shoot this uh, guy with one eye into the blind eye? <laughs> Is it PG thirteen reasons or what? I just I, always I paid attention to this. Supposed to be funny because the the dude has obviously like like one bad eye and Bond shoots him in the bad eye. Wouldn't it be more funny if he lost kind of his all of his vision when he gets shot? Oh yeah, that'd be hilarious. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, I I would be laughing also. But but then again, I'm an asshole. <laughs> me too. Just keep that in mind, listener. And me. 
So this was about three weeks of shooting. It was done somewhere at at Pinewood. Yeah. And then when there is this house that actually goes down to the waters, that is a third scale miniature around Pinewood. And they shot separately the element where the water is bubbling underneath the building. And it all comes together and it looks like it's actually in Venice with all the correct lighting and stuff. That's cool, that's cool. Still don't care for this sequence. Funny comments from cast and crew. Eva Green said to quote, It's quite relaxing, actually, to drown. Daniel Craig added, And you can't, of course, see a bloody thing. End quote. When he was underwater. The bitch is dead. There's the phone call with M. It's quite sad. Uh, James Bond is hardened again. His soul, his heart is hardened and uh, his love of his life is gone. In the novel, for example, he goes into the lengths of considering he would have married Vesper Lund, but he doesn't quite have time for that because the relationship starts to fall apart at the clinic when James Bond starts to get the idea of where that there's something wrong. The last scene in the film, of course, is happening at Lake Como. And uh, as said by the cast and crew, this is kind of a location that is all about the location. Bond finds Mr. White, goes up the steps when he has shot him. So he kind of elevates himself way above the bad guy, kind of indicating in a beautiful way that he is now above you all. He has won because his name is Bond, James Bond. Roll credits. Also being a major class asshole because he has just crippled a dude and now he's walking, walking on top of him like I- I'm standing here high and you're there on low. Asshole versus asshole. That's the film. Yeah, on to the quickies. Yeah. Favorite performance. Daniel Craig. Yeah, Daniel Craig would be my pick here. Though Eva Green is great as well. To me, all, all, all the main three actors of the film, Bond, Lind, and Le Chiffre, all are excellent, really, really terrific performances from everybody. To Max Michelson, this was basically... I'm, I'm guessing this is the film that actually finally re- really started his Hollywood career, and I can, yeah. I can see why. Eva Green, on the other hand, unfortunately wasn't as lucky. Managed to has one of those weird career paths where you one day you are working with someone like Tim Burton and doing a major million budget Hollywood blockbusters, and then all of a sudden you are doing a TV series. But hey, what are you gonna do? But my pick would be Miss Green. Mm. Mm. Yeah, good good choice. She has had a lot of high profile films after this. Make no mistake, but may have been kind of a all over the place, as you said. Yeah, it, it appears to be some kind of a running the theme with French actresses. But I don't know, Eva Green, I can't see her as some kind of a Marvel superhero level type of a actress, more of a like actress who probably wants to choose very carefully, even or especially after the Casino Royale fame, the films that she really wants to do. They may be a little bit uh, under the surface type of films. Yeah, yeah. Like she does kind of, kind of come off as an actress who who just wants wants to only do the films that she herself is interested of, and not really think about how that might affect her career. But while I do kind of admire that 
that that attitude at the same time it does lead into some pretty weird career choices like that sequel to the film 300 which absolutely fucking no one saw yeah <sighs> i've never i've never seen that film never yeah yeah N- neither has anyone else favorite scene for me as i've said this would be the poker scene I suppose I could go with the introduction of Vesper Lind in the train. I'm, yeah. I'm picking I'm picking the opening parkour. Oh, oh yeah. Good one, good one. <laughs> no, no, oh no, I'm I'm picking the airport actions. No, just kidding. <laughs> Favorite shot. Uh excuse me. I'm taking the uh, Venice mm. answer. Oh. oh, okay. Yeah, the building collapse was really really the best scene in the franchise. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite shot. It's that building singing in Venice. It's one of the best best shots of the franchise. <sighs> first shot on the very first scene with the uh, with the uh, the traitor. Okay, uh, for me it would be at zero zero point fifty six point zero three when this is the scene where M is giving the instructions for Bond and he's getting the implant for tracking purposes. There's a shot when they start moving off to the direction of the beach after having their discussion after you know, under the kind of a there's a kind of a ceiling above them and then they start approaching the beach. So there's Daniel's ass and gun between the belt on his back and the shirt is kind of hanging from the left side, walking sexily. So I'll just go with that. Because we have to have something controversial here, so there you go. No, but I really enjoy that shot. What? No liking for Daniel's ass? Okay. It's okay. <laughs> Sounds okay. Oh, what a surprise. Favorite quote? Yeah, that last hand nearly killed me. Mm-hmm. Mine would be the M's statement from the end of the film. Sometimes we are so so focused on our enemies, we forget to watch our friends. Yes. Well, since I... Seem to have written it even twice here. I'm just gonna go with that. I don't know why I did it twice, but... Stop touching your ear. Come on, it's a great performance. That, 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 that's a peak for the best quote. Yeah? The, those, those are words that a character says in the... Excellent delivery. So good that it was pointed on in Skyfall again. <laughs> Favorite kill. Well, I, I, I'm going to name the opening piss drinker in the bathroom at the beginning of the film. Mm. That is the best kill. So, yeah. Tom? The best kill. Uh, mm. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was waiting for, for a response. Um, <laughs> I really like the, the very first scene where, the, where Bond drowns the guy in the scene. So it's three for that. Or, or where the Ugandan dude gets strangled in the casino. Mm, true, true. Emotional kills. Guys, have you ever been to a casino? Um, Henrik, yep. you live in Uvascula, don't you? In Rovaniemi. Okay, but you've been to Uvascula. Yep. In Uvascula's shopping center, okay, with a roulette table on the bottom floor. Yeah, that should... I, I'm guessing it's still there. I've been there. 
it's not a casino, but you know. Uh, there's also a casino somewhere near the sea in Helsinki. Never been. I'm not really into this whole thing, but <laughs> I was thinking of going to casino today to drink my Vesper there, but then I decided, uh, what the hell? I don't have time for this shit, so I just went near the shopping center and found a pretty regular bar. Yeah, may- maybe after we finally get our Patreon started and we ca- we make a fortune, <laughs> a fucking fortune in Patreon money, then we can go to Katajanokka Casino. What pulled you in? Or what pulled you out? Whichever yeah. comes first. What pulled you out? Yeah, what pulled me out is the just the action scenes, which went on far, far too long. And, I agree. And Venice... It just started to drag. It, it just lost me. I agree. The Venice starts to lose me. Well, the problem... I, I, I don't agree. The, the Venice doesn't lose me. The Venice uh, falling building loses me, for sure. I'm I'm on with the building. Like, to me, there is actually nothing that really took, takes me out of the film. I kept actually wondering how it's possible that Vesper can possibly know that the elevator is going to behave that way that it does in the film and she gets to drown. It's a really violent motion that the elevator is doing. It doesn't seem like a regular motion. Well, of course, the building is in pieces, but it seems like whatever movie. What pulled you in? Daniel Craig's performance and Vesper. Hmm. I- I'm gonna be highbrow as shit and state that the strong sense of style an identity. Ooh. Ooh. Definitely the identity. They're not now trying. They have a proper story arc. It seems finally like a focused James Bond film, which it very much is. Dialogue, performances from the three big ones. I really dig, dig some of the um, camera work as well. The DP. Nice costume design, by the way, as well. And what would you chip chop in the film, Scissors of Sacrilege? Mm. Kind of nothing on my end. I do have my kind of a hang-ups with, with the film and, and some sequences where I kind of a seeing, seeing that that could have been done better. But I somehow just can't bring myself to hate those scenes and sequences enough to for me to actually start to advocate for it. Changing them. Speed up Venice and don't explode any buildings. For me, I would snip the duration of the film by about 25 minutes to half an hour. Wow. That would pretty much be the airport sequence and the Venice, Venice sequence. Yeah, yeah. Like if, if you would remove those, then you would get that, that time limit. Yeah, I, 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 I have my problems with those those two particular scenes. Building an airport. I, I I can see why they uh, why they trouble you guys. I my myself. I I don't share your your sensitivities when it comes to those sequences. But I I can very well see your arguments. I mean the scenes themselves. I think are okay, but just tonally they are off. Yeah. You really know you're watching Casino Royale, Red Beach Thirteen. When. When somebody dies itching your balls. <laughs> <laughs> when you yourself go all in with super high stakes, because that goddamn certain is a casino royale and a bond move. When you can't get your eyes off the perfectly formed ass. Of who? I'm, I'm kind of sensing that once we are doing the roundup of, of the bond 
Already, I'm putting my place bet in in the place that Kari is going to ask for the best asses of Bond. <laughs> Can we do like uh, a James Bond special, like um, award show, like <laughs> the best ass award? <laughs> m- m- most most male ass in Bond film goes to Daniel Craig. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to suck my mom, my dad. <laughs> Especially my mom. <laughs> oh, my mother and father must be proud of me. Okay. <laughs> mom, I made it. <laughs> Three adjectives to describe Casino Royale. Mm, it's very edgy. Edgy. Mm. Edgy, edgy, and edgy. That, that's a hell of a lot of edge. Edge lord. Mm. Well, uh, it's smart, it's original and gritty. Mm. To, to me, it was revitalizing, because this most definitely was. It's innovative and it's classy. I feel like Henrik is the only one who is putting effort into this. <laughs> I check this. <laughs> I, I, I'm guessing I am, because for heaven's sake, I actually had like before we started to record. I I made the notion that I was trying to transfer one a text file from one computer to another, yeah. and to finally <laughs> let let you know what that text file was, it was actually my my written notes on how to play Packerat, which I had composed just in case that. You would have actually named that you have a huge problem with the film because they changed the, the game from Packard to Texas Hold'em. So I composed the notes on exactly how Game of Packard would play out, just so that I can show you that Game of Packard is the most dullest and most boring and most uninnovative game that you can just have in your casino. Somehow I feel like I want to hear this. I feel like Packard is the greatest game in the world. Go. Well, uh, fuck you for... First and foremost, for making that notion, because Packard most definitely is, is <laughs> one of the lamest games, lamest kind of games you can have. Like the basic rules for of Packard for for our listeners who have no experience in playing Packard, I present to you in this casino game podcast. But essentially, the player, the game starts with players making their bets. They basically they bet on the winner. The player, the banker, or or it being a tie. And that's the only fucking choice you make in a game of Packard. After that, two cards are dealt. One for the player and one set for the banker. The goal of the game in Packard is to get as close to nine as possible by totaling the value of your cards. You can ma- have max three cards uh, in, in your stack in the in, on the table. And whatever that... that third card ever even can be drawn, either by the player or the banker or the both, this, uh, that's a decision that actually comes is dictated by the rules. Like, unlike in Blackjack, where you can say, where, where, where you make the choice, you say, I take a card. In, in Packerat, that's based on the rules. You can't take a card unless the rules permit it. In, in your average game, all the tens and the face cards are counted as zeros. So, for example, a combination of cards king and five would 
count as 5 and 10 10 would count as 0 a and ace queen is 1 it's no. boring even to listen to aha besides in my point and i'm not even halfway through these notes <laughs> like jesus christ these rules go on forever and and actually the the end result is that the player himself makes no decisions in the game whatsoever like none after choosing who is he, who he places his bet on and the entire game because of this the entire game is is just 100% luck based like there is no skill when i said there is no skill in packet there most definitely is no skill and and bond being so masterful in packet therefore is not a testament of his his smarts or his bluffing abilities his ability to read his opponent or even his gambling skills it just uh, shows you that bond wins simply because because of the fact that he has four lift clover fornicating horseshoe shoved up his ass but henrik did you pay attention to this that they are playing in the book Baccarat uh, Chemin de Fer version. And I have no idea how that differs from normal version. Uh, I would hazard to guess that that's either the large table Baccarat, which is what you most often see in Bond movies, which actually has no effect really on the game. It just means how many players can enter the game. And maybe the Leche, uh, whatever is played in Casino Royale, is the small table table version of Packer, which would kind of, kind of limit the maximum participants of the game into a lower number. Here it says, uh, Chemin de Frère this, uh, derives from the Italian game Baccarat, differing from it in that players bet one at a time against each other instead of against the house. As a casino game in the United States, Chemin de Fer was displaced by Baccarat in the late 1950s. So it's, it's still the same goddamn boring game that of which introductions Tom couldn't even listen through. <laughs> Up to 12 players played on a kidney-shaped table. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Good riddance for Baccarat. All right. Yeah, my, my problem is that somehow, even though I spent most of Saturday for this goddamn movie and the book and everything around it, I still wasn't done with all of my notes so i know i was busy testing the vesper drink in the bar yeah so I, i'm making making notes here like crazy and and studying card games and god knows what and you are coughing down booze but Is see see saying? you goddamn asshole <laughs> see we get all these juicy details from different viewpoints because you're reading about baccarat and i'm i'm sipping alcohol in the bar so you know <laughs> works Works great. Yeah, so did you look at your watch during the film? Yes. Nope. Yes, I'm no. no, I didn't. No, I wouldn't go so far, but I have been watching my watch before during this goddamn building scene. But, Tom Franklin, would you recommend Casino Royale? Yes, I would, yeah. And Henrik? Most definitely, yeah. This is, this is a saving grace for the entire fucking franchise. And it's a, it's a film that somehow manages to make make bunch of assholes sitting around a table playing cards somehow interesting. Yeah, I would recommend it as, as well. Uh, I was listening to the intonation of Henrik there when he said, would he recommend it? I mean, I, I think we should get like a comp- compilation of things. I mean, I, in License to Kill, it was something like, 
Most fucking definitely. And <laughs> Goldeneye, something similar. It had the fucking there. This one was missing it. Now, yeah, Henrik. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I have to inject fucking in all my recommendations because <laughs> that's something that I'm not getting in real life. And, and the loneliness is slowly killing me. Uh, I think we are, Henrik, getting off topic. I'm sorry for your heartache and all. But like, um, so Timothy Dalton or Daniel Craig? Is it too early to say? I would say it's too early still. Let's keep in mind we won't know that until the, uh, for that until the uh, No Time to Die comes out. Yeah. Precisely, precisely. Because when, when it comes to Daniel Craig and valuating Daniel Craig as a Bond, the... Well, Spectre does still affect on the notion, and most likely also No Time to Die will also affect. It might still save Daniel Craig somehow, or completely like cement his doom. I just watched Spectre the other day to give a refresher. I really didn't feel like doing it, but then I started to watch the film, and while it wasn't all that bad and maybe we have had some misinformation misunderstandings about the film but it remains that this film is kind of severely flawed it's just dull it's just very dull man yeah um hard to say for certain i haven't uh, revisited spectre after seeing it in the theaters the first time i can't blame you yeah i i hated it back then for for reasons saved for the next episode in the Bond run, but uh, sure, sure, certain, there, there is a possibility that Spectre will somehow salvage at least part of itself on a, on a second viewing. I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> Alright, I guess that wraps it up for Casino Royale. Definitely one of my favorite Bond films, no doubt. Same here. Yeah. Definitely in, in top 10, I would say. Maybe even in yeah. It's not as good as Moonraker. Nah, <laughs> <laughs> nah, you heretic. <laughs> it's been quite a run. We started this Bond run in, what was it? July? August? And now look where we are. <laughs> it's yeah, been yeah, we, uh, we going great. Are we? <laughs> I most definitely am. Like, I'm, I'm slowly reaching the point where I'm kind of waiting when we are finally done with Bond films. <laughs> I was a bit surprised, I have to say... When you said that, okay, we're not going to look only one film from each actor or something like that. We're going to look at two films from each actor. So it's been hugely enjoyable as a James Bond fan, so to speak. Yeah, I, I just felt that it wouldn't be fair to, to Bond actors to simply look at one film. Like, either look at the shining success or, or then the miserable failure of their careers. Yeah. What's next, Henrik? Seems like we're going to look at the birth of a nation next. What do you think? Are we ready for? Mm, not gonna be problematic at all. Oh, that's good. Yeah. So this is a silent epic film <laughs> from the very early times. You know what, Henrik? I've been thinking that we should also watch Napoleon here. I've been thinking of ordering the Blu-ray for me. So since we're going to look at the birth of a nation as well. Okay, it's an old French film which had a lot of innovative filming techniques, like the the widest screen format ever, <laughs> and it lasts like five hours, so... Yeah, that most definitely sounds like a project for this podcast. <laughs> do, do you want to join us in, in Napoleon, Tom? Uh, when's that? 
I, I don't know. Whenever we have time to watch five hours of film. Holy shit. And then talk about <laughs> it for 15. Holy fuck. <laughs> uh... Like, like it, it, it's gonna be like it was that, that 50th celebration episode, which we, we started the recording one day and then finished the recording on the fourth day. Google's saying the film was made in 1927. Yep. Really? Yep. Yep. That's the one. Yep. Yep. It's 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 a French uh, French silent film. And it's silent, okay. Link. Yep. Well, um, how can we? How are you going to ask the uh, favorite line question? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it has cards on screen. You know. Well, that that actually is gonna be a problem also with the birth of the nation. <laughs> favorite card. <laughs> favorite card. Favorite unspoken line. <laughs> Uh, thirty-five minutes and six and fifteen seconds was pretty good. It has had many, many different versions of different lengths, and Blu-ray seems to be three hundred and thirty-three minutes in length. Oh my god! Uh, sorry, how long? Sorry, three hundred thirty-three minutes. Okay, so oh fucking hell! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, well, welcome to the not point episodes of this podcast. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> um, <laughs> you can you can you can still just say that you are busy. I'm busy. Yeah. Okay. How's this? Just invite me on at the end of the podcast to speak for five minutes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. I don't know if we can if we can go on here for fourteen hours talking about the film without some help. <laughs> our, our listeners are shit can't. But yeah, Birth of the Nation next week. Thanks for tuning in. See you next week. I'll see you then. Bye. The methods that Bond has had to use to get into Am's apartment, none of them are actually shown to you. And uh, Henrik. even that yeah. with the information that Bond is digging from Am's computer. So there's a, Henrik, there's you're a, really muffled right now. There's a hell of a lot of stuff that, that kind of happens and exists there, and you are not, not actually shown what the hell is going on. I think uh, your rodent dropped or something. It sounds like you're very muffled now, Henrik. Is he dead? No. Hello? Oh, okay. Now it's better. No time to die, Henrik. You're doing a podcast. God damn it, you! Too tired to live. <laughs> well, maybe, hopefully, that fixed that one. Too preoccupied to decompose. <laughs> so, at what point? Having too much fun to be better. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, that last line nearly killed me. Last hand. Yeah. No time to die. It would be for. 5th of April, if it's out for everybody at that point. It's rumored that James Bond will die in this film. I thought he had no time to die. <laughs> <laughs>